When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. Today, we are going to be diving in to the underworld and almost the pits of Tartarus. It is episode seven of the TV show, and we have a lot to talk about. So stick around. Yay! Welcome, everybody, to yet another special episode of Seaweed Brain. Every episode is special. Today is extra special because we have two brand new guests that I'm so excited to have on for this episode. We are welcoming Jay Maya to Seaweed Brain Podcast. Hello, friend. Oh my gosh, what an honor to be here. I've been looking forward to this for weeks and I watched the episode so many times that it's imprinted on the back of my eyelid. So I'm excited to get into it. (laughs) (laughs) You all may know Jay Maya from her prolific career as a singer-songwriter, creating music specifically full of literary and Greek mythology references. I'm sure that listeners of Seaweed Brain and listeners of J. Maya, that Venn diagram is probably a circle. You also might have seen her on season 45 of Survivor. <laughs> my sister and my sister's boyfriend said to tell you that the way that you got off the show was not right. They were like, it wasn't her time. She didn't deserve to go. I, I, you have no idea actually how much that means to me. Thank you. But if it, if it makes them feel better, I feel like it's the Percy Jackson universe where I, you know, went off the show, but then I just like regenerated like a monster. So I'm back, ready to ready in action. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, back, can't get rid back of me. on the internet here on Sweet Brain, <laughs> regenerated from Tartarus. Exactly. Uh, our second brand new guest who we're welcoming today is my dear friend Sophia Reigns, all the way from Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Sophia. So so excited if I could talk to my 12 year old self who was really into these books and say that I'll be on a podcast discussing Percy Jackson. I would not believe her at all because I hate public speaking, but here we are. I'm really excited I convinced Sophia to come on the podcast because not only is Sophia a genius screenwriter and filmmaker working in LA, but also is the only person on the earth that I talk to more about media than Carter. Like the only person who I'm constantly discussing everything I see and digest with more than Carter. So it's only right that Sophia join us here today. And I'm excited that Carter and Sophia are meeting right now. That's like two halves (laughs) of my brain, like connecting. (laughs) That is actually crazy watching you speak, Carter, because I like (laughs) listened to you for like the past, like what, five, seven weeks. And it's like, wow, love is blind when you see people out the pods or like, that's your voice speaking. Whatever. Okay, we're having a reality TV moment today. <laughs> I also want to shout out Melissa Proopsashart. Melissa yes. Proopsashart, who's definitely not listening to this podcast right now, but the professor in whom's class Sophia and I met second semester senior year. She changed our lives. She taught cinema of American migration. She's a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan, and she's an icon and a legend. And you should all look her up and read the things that she's written. Also read the things that she's had in her syllabus because it's the way that decolonization is not a metaphor and worlding beyond the the world is on my computer hard drive there you go that's like permanently there it's the sacred text yes 
Yay. All right. So before we talk about episode seven, we have one more introductory thing to do. Carter, will you thank our new and sustaining patrons this week? Yes. The new patrons that we have to thank this week are The Volcano Jr. and Kaylee. Shout out to both of you. And the sustaining patrons that we're going to be thanking this week are Dayton, Jordan, Justin, and Nathan. Thank you for supporting the podcast. You can join our Patreon where we have 11 special episodes and we also owe you one for December and January. All right, everybody. A little, a little overarching thought on episode seven. I personally feel as though this episode is tied for my favorite episode in the series with episode five. So that's obviously going to color the rest of this episode. If you felt the same way, I hope you're excited to do this deep dive. If you, if you didn't like the episode, maybe we'll change your mind by the end of this conversation. It, it's the penultimate episode where plot is going down amidst huge set pieces and world expansion and we're using a flashback b plot to take us on an emotional roller coaster ride to reach our favorite character delivering to us the thesis of this series and that is how i feel about this episode <laughs> chills erica chills actually so well done <laughs> i will say that i agree with you erica i know i sent you a voice message about this that this is my tie with my favorite episode is this one episode four Again, deep parent relationships. I love those episodes because of that. And yes, ooh. this is my favorite episode. <laughs> I, I had some favorites before this one. So yeah. I just, I thought the drama was, it was really giving this episode. And I, I was crying at the end of it. So I can't oh, wait I to dive really in. Yeah. I was, this had me really thinking about me as a child. And I won't say I was difficult as a child, but I'm pretty sure I wasn't easy. I mean, being the firstborn <laughs> and... I told you, Erica, I have ADHD as a kid. So I'm sure that my parents, maybe they weren't like praying to a God to like help them <laughs> figure out what to do with their kid. But I'm sure there are plenty of discussions. And I think yeah. it's so really interesting to see, not just like from Sally's perspective, but Percy watching Sally. I think there's definitely a moment in like development where mm. kids of any sorts kind of recognize your parents parenting you and like your effect on your parents. Mm -hmm. As yeah. a result, and I think that's something you're so interesting. I know I've had those moments in my life as a kid, thinking about that and to see that in Percy. And as a kid, not being able to fully understand or empathize fully because he's a child, yeah. but still having an emotional reaction and being witness to those things, I think it was just so fascinating. And I just like I love that I was crying both like as someone who's older, but also someone who's been a kid. I'm like, this is like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're all in that in-between age. I felt that very strongly in this episode of not knowing who I more strongly identify with here, <laughs> whether I feel like the kid or whether I feel like a single mom. I'm not either. <laughs> and yet I am both. The duality yeah. of men. A single mom who works two jobs, but my two jobs are doing this podcast. Reba, <laughs> literally. Do you guys know that my tribe on Survivor was called Reba? And that was the first thing I thought when I was assigned that tribe name. I was like, is no one else making this joke? I'm a survivor. Okay, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> wow. So now we have to have Reba as Hera. I just, I just think I'm going to put that casting there. A Four letters. Mom. Yeah, she, <laughs> she's a single mom who works two jobs. And her two jobs are gaslighting Percy and what, running like Mount Olympus? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, dealing with her husband's infidelities. I think that's also a third job in it. So. Oh, yeah. 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 Messing with demigods' lives and dealing with her husband's infidelities. Those are her two jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shall we take a trip to Krusty's waterbed palace, everybody? Yes, absolutely. 
the the way that we handle this scene that is like a chapter of the books that I think is beloved of some people and forgettable for a lot of other people. I forgot about the time you read the books. I'm like, that was a thing? Exactly. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's easy to forget about it, but then as you're reading it, I think it like simultaneously is a good temporary foot off the gas before we're about to like zoom into it and also serves as sort of like a benchmark for us to understand Percy's progress. But the way that they handle both of those functions here while also being like, we're going to be in and out in like three minutes minutes but also we have to figure out a way for us to not feel tired for us to have the other departments pull things in visually so that it feels like a strange light romp through something else without you know taking us too far afield i think it's really cool because i think he's talking about how the benchmark for like percy but i think it's also a benchmark for percy and annabeth and how they are able to like work as a team and Mm -hmm. it's exactly No, wait, I didn't mm-hmm. realize that Annabeth was invisible and I was just like, and she comes out and she pushes him and that's just like, he didn't have to say anything but he was just like, how about you take a lie down and she just pushes him. I think that's so great how there's no friction in their teamwork at this point. Yeah. The coordination, the knowledge, this is here to say like, okay, Percy, Annabeth, Grover, if it's like a regular challenge, quote unquote, done. In the yeah, bag. Easy. We're prepared. Easy. Uh-huh. So set us up with a good clean baseline for the underworld i think yeah but i also think it's cool because i do think procrastus is almost his final boss in terms of percy recognizing himself as the son of poseidon mm-hmm. and yeah the idea of like they're yeah. making you try to fit into like all these different p- places and i do think that yeah. like in the books they don't see in the first book especially they don't talk about it i think well i think they might depending if like they have the conversation with percy and poseidon saying how you don't like to be forced into things like the ocean doesn't like to be held back and mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. just like any like neurodivergence like if kids who are different being told to be something that's so hard to put into this one box like the strain of that i think that's just something really yeah. cool you have with procrastinate and it's a great way to start this episode in which we are going to at the end have sally deliver the thesis statement about what kind of hero percy <laughs> is going to choose to be that he's mm-hmm. faced with at the beginning of this episode a very nasty crusty son of poseidon and this will not be the kind of son of poseidon he chooses to be also, if people weren't aware, this actor who plays Krusty is is Julian Richings, who was also in the Lightning Thief movie and played Charon in the Lightning Thief movie, <laughs> which isn't actually the only similarity between people who worked on the movie and the TV show, because we we actually just recorded an episode with the stunt coordinators for the Percy series, which will come <laughs> out later in February, and both of them happen to also work on the Percy Jackson movies. Then they'll tell that story when we have that episode out. Do they work on the Sea the, the of Monsters as well, or just the Yeah. Monsters? Yeah. They worked so on both. Cool. Oh, yeah, so when they were like Completed. in the start of their career. Yeah, it's really cool. And now they're like stunt coordinators, which is so awesome. Do I even um, watch Sea Monsters just because of that? Or is it okay if I just don't? <laughs> the stunts are really good, I hear, actually, on that movie. <laughs> the stunts <laughs> seamless. But um, but building off of like what we were talking about with this scene, something I thought was really phenomenally done, and you touched on this a little bit, Sophia. What I love about this series is how it's really developing the relationship between Percy and Annabeth with limited time. And I think something that really comes through when you read the series is how unspoken this communication between Percy and Annabeth is from the beginning. And obviously Mm -hmm. that's like the basis of the friendship, right? Like it's a limited period of time. They're getting to know each other, but there's this almost magic in the way that they're able to read each other. They're able to sense when the other is in danger from the beginning. And I like the small changes that they've made with the scene where it's like, 
like you said, like we don't even know Annabeth is there, but Percy is obviously fully aware that she's there the whole time. He gives her the the punchline, so to speak. Like he lets her finish it off. He tees it up for her. And it, it's, it's like blink and you miss it. It's like a small moment, but I think it really just speaks a lot to the trust that they have in each other. Um, and trust and everything, obviously, is just like a huge yeah. – trust and loyalty is such a, a big theme of this episode. So I think it's great yeah. that we started off with that. I was just looking at episode three, work of art. But like even talking about the trust <laughs> thing is that like the whole thing where Percy's like, I don't know who to trust. And then Annabeth, who's like – he just said this horrible thing about like, I don't – like I could never be friends with her. And what she responds is, um, I let you off from your deal and I killed your sister. And this action of like, this is my action here, so you trust me. And then Percy mirrors that in the same. And then ever since then, there's just really, like you said, unspoken thing of like, we are fully aware on the same page of what the other has done for each other before we were even on good terms. Yeah, once mm. the evidence is there, they trust each other. It's not blind trust, but it is like very logistical, this is necessary in order for us to move about the quest. And so let's just trust each other and work together because they are very excellent coworkers. <laughs> and, and quest partners yeah um i love this that. is also this scene also serves to help us pick up as one of our patrons i don't know if it was amanda or Haley said chekhov's uh squeaky red ball yeah in the book it comes from waterland and she just oh, like annabeth just right. kind of like pulls it out of her backpack but it's very cute that she just picks it up off of the like shelf in the crusty's office and gives it to grover as he's panicking also emotional things he's able to recognize he's emotionally not in a good spot and actually do something about it i think that's really cool for her emotional intelligence development and i think that's really interesting because i mean again i'm obsessed with how they developed her emotional evolution this season and i think that's just a really cool note of being like okay i can't maybe we'll be able to give you a comforting words but here's a ball so you can like work it this out quietly yes because Grover mm-hmm. has anxiety. <laughs> you know, it's not like underground things. Pearl dispension. Everybody gets a pearl. If I remember correctly, in the books, they're given three pearls. And in the show, they give mm-hmm. them four. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. fascinated by what a, what a, what some, that's so fascinating. It's, it's can be perceived as a really small change, but it does change the dynamics of everything immediately. Like there's no reason for them to start thinking about who has to stay behind until it's imminent. And the the danger is right there because it was just assumed that all four of them would get to escape. It like raises the stakes of it when it's suddenly mm-hmm. something that they have to decide. Give some hope and it takes it away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it used to be that they, um, it was the DOA recording studios that was the yes. entrance to the underworld. As a singer-songwriter, I did love the metaphor of a recording studio being the entrance to hell in LA. There were so many like, <laughs> lines. I was like, wow, guys. Like, I, look, I'm not going to argue. I've been there before. There's just like also all these lines that are so funny to me in the book about how LA is different from New York. And it's like, it is. in New York, it is. everything makes sense. Exactly. And in L- LA is Aries town because it's chaotic and no one knows what's going on. And I was like, yeah. Guys, I was caught in like bumper to bumper traffic once. And I saw a guy with the tattoos and the shaved head get out of his car, bang on the hood of the car in front of him, screaming at him, calling him everything but a child of God. And then the guy in the car is just taking it, staring straight ahead, and then goes back in his car to stay in more traffic. And I was terrified. This happened, like, right next to me. So, like, I was, like, in my car, too. I was terrified. That was Aries. So when he says the LA is Aries' town, I'm like, yes, it is. Yes. 100%. <laughs> also, RIP to um, Caron and his fine, like, Italian suit. suit and his race. Yeah. I did miss that, too. I will say it was an interesting tonal shift. And I really liked this in general about the underworld. Like, 
you really get the sense that it's a drama. I think in the books, when mm-hmm. you're a kid and you first read it, it's easy to parse through some of the the darker stuff and just be like, oh, Percy's funny and he kills monsters and it's so fun. <laughs> and then, you know, you grow up and you reread it and you're like, actually, this is really dark. Like, this is about three children who are torn from their homes. They don't have a sense of belonging except for each other. And they're going to the underworld. And I think that just really comes through in this episode and just in general with the tonal changes like with Caron like having him be this like horror movie jump scare moment when you first are introduced Mm -hmm. to him like I think that really just increases that sense of foreboding and it it increases I think like the tension for the viewer you're like oh oh my gosh like someone could actually die here you know well a lot of people have died Mm -hmm. here but you know what I mean (laughs) we'll all die die gradually Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah exactly I've been thinking about this a lot and trying to think of like critiques of the season because genuinely I have enjoyed it so much and I feel like so many of the choices make perfect sense to me but in trying to think of things that like could be better about it and like trying to think of like generative suggestions like I think that this season was appropriately dark given that it's about Percy trying to get his mom back and there's so much we have to set up and we have to set up the stakes of the world. There's multiple wars brewing. There's a lot going on in this book, but I think that it gives us the opportunity for the sea of monsters to be funnier and sillier. And like the stakes are not quite as high in a certain way that allows us to have more comedy and like take a little bit more time with certain things and for it to just feel lighter. And I'm looking forward to that opportunity in the second season knock on yeah. every surface you know <laughs> we all know it's gonna happen I really like that perspective because I think one of the huge strengths of the Percy Jackson franchise as a book and also in the tv show is how they're able to infuse humor that's very relatable to the demographic that it's aiming for like I never felt when I was reading the books growing up that it was talking down to me like it, it was funny mm-hmm. and I feel like even in this in this episode there were so many jokes that I think are just completely universally you can laugh at like my favorite moment I was literally dying laughing is because just because it's what it's one of those jokes like the more you think about it the funnier it gets is when uh Percy is like oh we're not in Kansas anymore and Annabeth is like Percy focus we left Kansas four days ago <laughs> it's like one of the funniest jokes I only see the Virgo but that's such a Virgo move I'm claiming it Virgo's in a placement somehow carter and sophia are both virgos i thought our listeners should know that (laughs) very important should we go to our first flashback oh yeah interesting about the first flashback i felt like audio wise i think it's interesting we go from crusty's and you kind of hear like a blinking noise and i didn't notice at first until we cut to the car turn signal blinking and that was like really interesting how it was so seamless and how like it kind of takes you from the moment mentally what I love most about the series is how it's able to remember emotional continuity because we did just come from like the casino and then Hermes had that flashback, you know, Percy's flashback of him being in the car. And then I feel like as Percy's getting closer to saving his mom, I think it's him like really recognizing his relationship with his mom in a different sense as being a son of Poseidon. And I think it's really great that he's like so close and this very emotional and very like, hard memory is coming to him yeah in -hmm. all of the flashbacks from this episode something i think really came through is we're starting to see the seeds of percy's fatal flaw of loyalty and Mm -hmm. i think especially in the way that he interprets his mother's actions he interprets it as oh why are you trying to get away from me and then in a later flashback i would have never Mm -hmm. done this to you i what a wild thing for someone his age to say well that's such a good point (laughs) i felt this moment where i feel like both like the mother and the child because on the one hand, like, I've been the kid who's been like, 
I would never say that to you, mom, or stop treating me like this. But then, like, as an adult, knowing what Sally's gone through, I think that's just mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a line well delivered, well written. It really shows, I think, how, like, kids as being, like, still young, do know what they're talking about a lot of times and are still very emotionally perceptive and do know where to make it hurt for their parents. Mm. Yeah. 100%. And also this juxtaposition between Percy's worldview at this time and something that he struggles with throughout the series and in future series, like, where is the line between I would do anything for the people that I love, I want to be with them, I want to protect them. And sometimes there are things that we have to do that hurt the people we love that are still yes. necessary. That And we see that in this episode in the culmination of like, yes. my mom is there, I can save mm-hmm. her. But ultimately, if I do this action, it will help us all in the long run and his struggle with that. Yes. And I think it's so brilliantly just kind of exemplified in these scenes where he just can't fathom why she's acting the way she's acting. Also, mm-hmm. I think it's good foreshadowing. He's like, I would never do this to you and leave you alone. But it's good foreshadowing for what he has to do at the end of this episode. He's like, you know, I'm not going to throw you in my shot. I'm not going to throw you in my shot. But that's what exactly what he does. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so great because I think it's, again, like you're saying, brilliantly, Maya, it's like, I'm just thinking from a child's perspective of like, no, like what I want is how things should do. Like what I feel like this is so simplistic, but then realizing that sometimes the best things to do, we can do for people or for the bigger picture is to hurt them, is to sometimes leave them behind. And yeah. knowing mm. that, like, well, the thing is, like, Sally made that sacrifice for him mm-hmm. and for the bigger picture of him getting to Camp Half-Blood and then yeah. really recognizing the fact that, like, there are sometimes we do have to make sacrifices for people we love. And it doesn't mean that they don't love you yeah. and you don't love them. Yeah. But mm-hmm. in the grander scheme of things. Yeah. Yes. I think that's all correct. I think we <laughs> we need to have a word about the way that this was portrayed. Because, you know, little um, cyber birdies have let me know that there, there's a division in the reception to this performance. Someone messaged me and was like, Reddit is a mess right now. And I was like, why are you on Reddit? Get off of Reddit! <laughs> <laughs> <We're> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Don't be on Reddit. But I, I think some people are having a lot of difficulty reconciling the book's description of Sally as a basically infallible mother. Without some Percy's perspective. Like, Percy, like, sees his mom as, like, perfect. The thing is, is that when you're parenting, again, parenting a child, listening to taking the godly fact, like, he has dyslexia and ADHD, and that's, like, hard, because that kid's always going to be different. Parenting them is always going to be different. And she's a single mother. She's a first-time mother. We don't get to know if, like, she has family, like, in the state of New York or alive in general. So she's doing this all on her own. And I do think that's what I love with the series, is that we get to take take ourselves out of Percy's perspective of this like yes like this like Madonna character of like Sally. Yes. <laughs> this we will not Madonna Sally Jackson. She is yeah. not a doormat who smiles at everybody and makes nacho cheese dip for Gabe. Mm-hmm. We're not yes. doing that this time. And I, I think it's it's worth settling on the fact that like there are a number of levels on which good parenting is going to involve something that is not doormatting if there is an impasse that she's reaching with percy would a quote-unquote good mother just stop or like like change her opinions like if she's driven percy to this school that he has just gotten into and he doesn't want to get out of the car is she supposed to like ask him nicely and wait in the car until he organically changes his mind because of how saintly she's behaving like i I don't understand really like what the counterfactual is because especially like in the books we're not given these scenes like Percy is able to say these things 
at a point in his relationship with Sally where he is a little bit older, he has more emotional maturity than he did as like a seven-year-old, right? And also he's describing all of these things with the benefit of hindsight of like knowing as a 12 year old I've had a good relationship with my mother all these years so like when I describe it to you reader listener however you interpret the like framing device that exists in the lighting theme and a little bit less in the other books like what he's doing is he is giving you like the high level summary of their relationship which is positive and would be positive whether or not and like not even whether or not like to have that positive relationship you need to have a mother who will tell a seven-year-old sometimes that we're gonna do this thing and like also will then turn around in the future scenes like give it back to the principal who is saying something that doesn't make any sense and is clearly going to result in like a harmful outcome for her child you know like i i just this is completely consistent it's just giving you scenes that you haven't seen in the books exactly <laughs> as we get to see more different gods especially again a reference to the casino episode with hermes but like thing is like parenting is hard he's saying it's like sometimes yes like, it's making yeah. the hard choices and i really like about this series now it's like we've gotten to see a lot of different modes of parenting in the godly world we've got echidna being the mother of monsters her babies are her king like that she like gives that we also have like athena and that complicated relationship we haven't gotten a chance to meet mm-hmm. her so i won't make any assumptions or accusations towards athena but i do think how she's very much like a disciplinarian authoritarian kind of figure with her mm-hmm. and, like, Annabeth. Mm-hmm. we've seen everything like I don't like my kids. They're all right, I guess, and being very distant. <laughs> and we've seen Hermes being tied to Poseidon and how he, like, says, like, him, Poseidon. They're comparing notes on parenting, which we should really, like, you know, check that on that because low-key shade to Poseidon. But I think seeing Hermes and Sally and both saying how, like, you understand how hard it is to be close to someone knows mm-hmm. you're hurting them. Parenting is making the hard decisions. And I think that's what's great about the show is that there is no... Curve. I mean, there are definitely some parenting skills that are better than others, and we've seen that with like Hephaestus about his relationship with Hera. Yeah. But like, mm-hmm. parenting is so yeah. hard when you want mm-hmm. to make your kid happy, you want to do the best things, but sometimes it is either backing yeah. away, creating distance. Mm-hmm. Structurally, I'm obsessed with the way that we get that Hermes arm touch in the last episode to set up mm-hmm. this flashback sequence in this episode yeah. because it makes you think that Percy is still thinking about that flashback, right? That like, yes. like he got his arm touched and he was like, I don't want to think about this right now. But now as we're like going about and we're heading into the underworld, he can't stop thinking about it because he's thinking about yes. the words that Hermes said. And he's thinking about yes. his relationship with his mom and his relationship with his dad and his mom's relationship with his dad. Mm-hmm. But then exactly. in the next flashback, like this one can very clearly be seen as being from Percy's perspective. But then the further we get into these flashbacks, the more they separate from Percy's perspective yes. into Sally's perspective. So mm-hmm. that it doesn't happen immediately, but it starts to drift into things that we know Percy hasn't seen yet and we're starting to see from Sally's POV which Mm -hmm. is just when you get super emotional and overwhelmed and it's done in such a smart way because you don't even realize it's happening and I feel like it would be so jarring if you did realize that all of a sudden we're like not in Percy's perspective anymore because it makes it it should seem confusing but it doesn't confuse me Uh, interesting Mm -hmm. point though I wanted to say like I think that like uh, what's interesting about like I think I'll just take all like the Sally Percy flashbacks in general like we've seen with the pool scene they're very much in the same shot very together physically holding the same space but I think as we get to like this episode we see these flashbacks they are not in the same space and they're always like put at a distance where we see like Percy is in the back seat of the car or she's in the front seat or like, she's outside or in like the headmaster's office I have a lot to say about how the scene is composed but like in like he's like he's eavesdropping on his parents. We've all been in that kind of position where we're like hearing something we're not supposed to hear and we recognize this mm-hmm. dynamic shift. 
and even to like, the diner they're sitting like opposed to each other but also when she goes to to like the bar and when she's looking at him like through the glass like all this needs a separation mm-hmm. where it's like because she knows something that percy doesn't she is aware of this bigger thing in his role mm-hmm. and because of that they're not going to be agreement because she is the parent she has to be responsible Mm -hmm. I'm really obsessed with that point about structure and how it does feel as the episode goes on that the ends of the flashbacks are more tied to things that Percy is saying like it feels present and I think and Mm -hmm. maybe this is my brain just going too far off the deep end but it is interesting to me that in the book whenever we're introduced to the concept of the underworld there is this idea that like when you're in the underworld your emotions change your physicality changes like it it changes you and then also we get in this episode new lore about regret and how you are Mm -hmm. held down by your regrets you are almost forced to replay all of the moments in your head from your past that you wish could have gone differently while Mm. you're walking through the underworld and maybe it's too far to say but like what an interesting narrative tool to try to describe why we're going so hard back into percy's life and the moments that he he struggles to put two and two together about still, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes, and the choices that he made or didn't make. And it makes me want to see the versions of this episode where we see Annabeth's flashbacks Ooh. as she's walking through mm-hmm. the underworld and Grover's mm-hmm. flashbacks mm-hmm. as they're walking through the underworld. It's almost like, do you still want to do this knowing that you're going to walk through like your best of worst moments? Mm-hmm. I'm curious, and this is very unhinged, so like apologies in advance if you're like, you're thinking way too hard about this, but we're talking about regret and we're talking about the sincerity of the regrets that each of the kids are facing while they're walking through the underworld. Like we have gotten messaging up until this point in the series that Grover has regret about how things ended with Talia, but we also see only Annabeth, only Annabeth is really Mm -hmm. affected by the underworld. And like, I don't know why that is. And it's just something that's interesting to me is like all three of these kids are dealing with regret. Annabeth, I think it's so funny. She's most emotionally repressed, but also the most emotionally involved in this whole quest. Her whole motivations are emotional. She wants to prove something to the gods, to her mother. That's like why she wants to be on this quest so much. She wants to like have something to prove and validate her existence in this world. And of course she wants to save his mother, but that's a, that's an objective. Grover is an empath in the theater. I'm sure he's had like, I don't know, like, emotional chants or songs he's worked through with some of this <laughs> Loki Annabeth needs the most therapy and that's why she's the one that gets rooted in the fields of Asphodel exactly. like they all have regrets but she she needs therapy the most she does <laughs> yeah. seriously again she's also facing the fact of like again last episode where she does know about like with her reason has a touch but she's very well aware of how it feels yeah. and emotion those things are always mm-hmm. simmering in the back of her head and I think that now she's like come to contact with how her mother like treats her kids I think she's kind of wondering, what have I done all this for? What has, mm-hmm, like, yeah. as she's in the underworld, she's facing death, like, all of this, I worked What is my life, life worth? Yeah. Wow. What does it yeah. mean? And she's looking yeah. at Percy and his relationship with his mother, and she's thinking, maybe I shouldn't have left. Maybe I should have, mm-hmm. like, stayed with my dad and his dog. Yeah. Where they're literally going to rescue Percy's mortal parent at this point. All of them have mm-hmm. agreed to just go and get Percy's mom. This would be a great time for Annabeth to really be thinking about how badly mm-hmm. she wants to reconnect with her father. Also, like the memory of like Ser- right before we see like her playing with Serbius and like she's saying, "Yeah, like my dad used to have a dog," and this like memory of mm-hmm. home that's hitting her yeah. as a kid. Mm-hmm. So real. She says it so whimsically, like like she's like yeah. lost in that memory about that like maybe there was a good time. Wow, it's like yeah. her, like facing death. She's thinking about like mm-hmm. I might not see my dad again. I might not see his dog again. I might not be able to like make it right or any guilt she has about that. Yeah. Mm. And I think on Grover's end, he probably 
is well like he is the most emotionally mature out of all of them he's the most mature out of all of them because yeah. famously he is he's 24. 24 years old he's famously but, uh, 24 years old <laughs> <laughs> but like i when we think about the tolly situation regret is a very specific word i think he would feel bad about it i think this is something that probably is emotionally meaningful for him but the question of whether or not he thinks that he should have made other decisions as a protector well i feel like it's only so much he can do i think like power wise of satyrs and i do think that i think he understands that sometimes you can't beat electo as a demon so real well the flashbacks serve many purposes one of the purposes is to avoid us having to just do unglamorous hard jump cuts between regions of the underworld that do not appear to be connected by different sets (laughs) so we're in the underworld now (laughs) the flashback brought us from crusty to the to banks the and the river sticks. Yes. Um, yeah, we have a line. We've we've talked about a bunch of this. The color grading is is tough. This was, when we were doing our wash along, this was the first moment where we were like, oh I was like, I cannot see can anything. We see anything? <laughs> Brightness <laughs> at maximum. <laughs> I had to turn my lights off so I could see this. Yeah. <laughs> I think there is a strong argument that not just the darkness, but specifically the lack of contrast that we're getting as we get closer and closer to Asphodel is deliberate and oh, serves yeah. a dramatic purpose. Less color. I would like to murkiness. also contend that, you know... You could just make it brighter. <laughs> you could just make it brighter. I think that you can have grays and you can have other complimentary production techniques to create an emotional morass we were fortunate enough to watch the first two episodes in like a theater and Mm. the editing very clearly is optimized for the theater the the very dramatic like low lows of a lot of the bases and the sound mixing works very well in that context i would just i think like to remind the good people doing some of these things and probably not like the individual artisans doing the sound mixing but like the people who are like at the higher level being like what is the target a lot of people watch this show on like, you know, a laptop that is maybe five or more years old and maybe Me. like <laughs> wired headphones, you know, like, yep. I, I just, <laughs> and I, I think we, we gotta, we gotta have a target or maybe multiple settings that are, that are able to get to, get to everybody. Accessibility. Um, because I, I did have to move locations when we, when I was like typing up the outline, cause I was like, I literally have no idea what's going on right I now. I think that's the thing. It's like, it's too good. It looks too good. Yeah. It needs yeah. to look a little worse so Me that too. we can see it better <laughs> on worse surfaces. It needs to look worse to see it better. I love that, Erica. Yeah. This is also really fun. I did go through on my rewatch this afternoon and pause and look at the way that all the extras are dressed in line. Um, that was mm-hmm. really fun. The different ways that people have died and ended up in the underworld. It's cute. The direction that they gave the extras to be sort of like blank and non-responsive as they're pushing their way up to the front and walkers making all these jokes about being a new yorker and lying thing for you know suckers <laughs> i forget what the word he uses suckers that's probably the word yeah um. i will say this was different about my rewatch of or my watch of the show and maybe this is a me thing but i always thought that hell was like the tsa in the books and there was like a tsa line yeah it was more banality. Yes. It was also the border check, too. I feel like yes. he talks about in the books, like a border control situation, which I do feel like was referenced when he said sanctuary. It felt like an asylum yeah. thing. So I felt like. Yeah. It's that he talks a lot more about physical infrastructure in the books. In the books, this is also our opportunity to do a lot more didactic world building where you explain through the different lines, the different sections of the underworld, and you can kind of see them in the distance, and you're getting a better feel for like this is how the Greeks thought about all of this and like this is how this is mapping onto what the consequences are for all of our quests because this is where we will go if we screw up and or achieve certain goals in any number of combinations. If we die. 
if and 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 not not to put too fine a point on it, but listener, if we're spending too much time on world building, why did we change? Why did we have this all being implicitly characterized as we walk around instead of laid out through dialogue? Huh? 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 <laughs> and and they do sort of try to thread the needle of getting the classic Percy Jackson like banality of modern society jokey commentary about the arbitrary nature of governing structures in modern life with the true like horror grandeur through the fact that like as we're pushing past these like masses of people with the fog and the you know like spires coming out of the ground we have the elevator music playing in the background and we have like running adr like commentary jokes to me that's like an effective balance because like i I, I, I think that, like, if we were to try to impose the TSA visual gag on top of this, there's, there's just, like, certain combinations where you lose more steam and as far as the, like, acceleration. Couldn't agree more. We lose the gravitas of it being literally, like, the underworld. And I think that's so important yes. to kids to know, like, heroes can die, and this is where you will yes. end up if you don't yes. succeed. Yes. We need this whole book to set up the world in a very serious way so that in the Sea of Monsters, we can be a little bit sillier because we have to know what the stakes are. We can be fun. We can turn into guinea pigs. Yeah. And there there are different jokes that do very different things for pacing, right? Like the idea of like transforming the entrance does a super different thing as far as the ratchet that we have going up and up and up and tighter and tighter and tighter on the stakes and the tension of the episode. Like you can have the tension continually get higher and higher while people are like making different jokes and the sound design maybe shifts from one moment to the other. And I I think this is is the right balance. We're we're achieving all those things. Everything about how this scene in particular really drives home and like we've all been saying like the drama of this point in the story it feels like a movie like I think that was what was really striking mm-hmm. to me when I was watching it and with the decision to have Barry McCreary compose this sh- the show I remember when I when the uh, when they first announced that I was like oh I'm familiar with his work he scores epic films you know that that is what he does mm-hmm. how I was fascinated and curious about how that was going to kind of as we're discussing coincide with the humor and the levity that I think I've come to associate with Percy Jackson. And I think it's done really well because at the heart of this series and at the heart of this episode in particular, I think it really drives home what I think drew us all to the Percy Jackson series in some way when we first started reading it is that it is a modern day epic. It is a modern day hero's journey. When you read the Odyssey, Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily reading ahead to see like, what witty quip is Odysseus going to say to Circe on the island? You're, (laughs) you know, reading it because you're like, what an interesting story of human triumph over inescapable odds. And what a story that keeps me on the edge of my seat that I don't know what's going to happen next for. And I feel like that really comes across in a lot of the drama that is with the the shading, with the the vast, and to talk about the set, the vastness of the underworld, it's almost more equivalent to like Dante's Inferno. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, guess what, I like the vastness of it because it feels like kind of like death too. Like there's so much space. There's so much yes. endlessness of it. And it's almost it's kind of despairing. They've got to like, they've got to cross all of this just to get mm-hmm. to Hades. Whereas I think it's been like so yeah. quick and like series about like very tight spaces like Medusa's like her like little like diner her, her room we're talking about like the arc and like that's a very like narrow space mm-hmm. everything has been like so small even like mm-hmm. just you know it's a, it's a location yeah. and this is like the first time we're seeing like something so wide incomprehensible like yeah. 
because that's what death is. Mm-hmm. That's inevitable. Yes. Exactly. Mm. To support that, we have so many of these amazing, like, ultra, ultra wide shots. Like, I don't even know how else to describe them. Like, to fit the expanse, you have so many shots where the kids are, like, dots. The yes. perspective that they're trying to give here is almost impossible for you to understand the first time you watch it because some of the shots aren't that long. But it, it's it, it's very effective at, at giving you the sense yeah. of the kids also then feeling small and um, understanding that they have broached a new type of of world and threshold in their quest because they're literally kids going to the underworld yeah i think that comes across especially in like the performances of walker leah and arian because i think one performance that really struck me and i think we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about cerberus is how scared leah portrays annabeth to be when she's scratching Mm -hmm. him because and this is something that i thought about when i watched it i was like when i read this scene in the book we are seeing annabeth through percy's perspective he is an unreliable narrator and to him total Mm -hmm. competent exactly he's like he never perceives annabeth to be scared even if she of course would be because she's a kid scratching a dog that's like Mm -hmm. 40 times her size in the underworld where she's never been like of course she's going to be scared and and i think what i think is so especially effective about her performance in that she's terrified she's terrified Mm -hmm. we see Mm -hmm. her on the cliff, we see them pull her up and we see in her face this moment of, I can't let them know that I'm scared. She swallows it down. She says, Mm -hmm. thank you, turns around. And that I think is such a beautiful part of why it's so special to watch it as a TV series and to get out of Percy's head as the narrator always, because we see how it's affecting all of them and they can't hide it, right? Like they can't hide it in their faces. Um, and I just thought that was really well done. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. literally, like, Annabeth does this throughout the series where she swallows her emotions and she puts on like this general like facade. She's like, I got like, she can't focus on her fear. She's got to like give her the dog first and everything like that. I think that was so mm-hmm. cool. Like when Percy sees her on that dog. Take a deep breath, smile for the neighbors. Everything's fine. Everything's cool. <laughs> Standard reply. Lots of tests, lots, lots of papers. Of papers. <laughs> smile, wave goodbye. Yeah, then pray to the sky. Exactly. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> and that's almost more brave than the you know the slightly different version of Annabeth we get in the books it's braver to be terrified out of your mind yes to do yeah. it mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. move on you know <laughs> yes yeah. yeah oh I just Absolutely. realized I had a, a thought that I wrote down in like my notebook I think it's so interesting that like she comes Servius down not with anything that she learned at camp or from her mother but with something she learned from her experience with her dad and that's the first time we've gone that exactly it's the first time she's gotten that and then taking from Percy that sometimes you can handle things without some strategic plan but through experience of like you are human understanding the motion of that like mm-hmm. everyday life experience is training in itself mm-hmm. <laughs> that's such a yes. good point Percy is really affecting the way that she goes about her her hero-dumb. Yes, yes, exactly. There's other ways to be a hero. And then like Sidon says, it's like, he's going to learn things, not from you, but like, while he's at school and all the different things that's going to help him to become the hero he's going to be. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things. And the Annabeth is also, that there are things mm-hmm. that you can learn that necessarily aren't traditional hero things, but that yeah. will help you on your way to becoming a hero. Yeah. It's like Mr. Miyagi, like wax on, wax off. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There is one more thing that we have to highlight about this scene in particular, which is the moment that you referenced where she throws the ball up and Percy catches it. There is, yes. <laughs> this is another one where like, if you go too quickly, like you won't think through what the implications were. She throws it up and like he, like without pausing, squeezes it. So that Cerberus does the jump. Like yes. I, I, 
it's it's a like we we never get com- like any explicit communication about what the plan was how everyone respectively no. understood That's their roles but the coordination that of that moment he trusts annabeth so completely yes like in the casino, he's like you don't have the answer what hope do i have like he trusts her with his <laughs> life this is facing back to back during the last olympian this is no one touches her this is you dropped this this, this is you dropped, dropped this. It's Mark exactly. Athena. <laughs> it's also like I know she's alive. I know she's like he does not for a second think that she is dead and like was it the Titan's curse? Mm-hmm. I'm unwell. That's the greatest <laughs> love story ever told. It is the greatest love story ever told. Speaking of Mark of Athena foreshadowing, dare I say, with the cliff <laughs> and her hanging off the cliff. Speaking of, because I think Grover goes to reach too, but it's ultimately like Percy's hand that she grabs. Poor Grover. Also, at the end of the show, when I saw this uh, edit where it was like uh, Annabeth helps Percy up, and it's yeah. similar to how when she helped to helped him mm-hmm. up at capture the flag, and Grover's <laughs> just in the back, and everyone's like, "Who's helping Grover up?" Honestly, though, I will say I see you, Grover, as another 24-year-old who's just like, <laughs> honestly, just witnessing the growth of Persephone and is just there for the ride. Like, as a 24-year-old with so chronic hard. anxiety, just watching Persephone fall in love. That's me for real. <laughs> yeah, we can all call ourselves Grover Underwood. <laughs> in the backseat of the car as Percy runs the car into the wall because he's staring at Annabeth too hard. I literally <laughs> never thought Grover would be the most relatable one in the trio, but I guess yeah. that's what aging does to you. I think Grover has some full stop great moments in this, though. Like, obviously, he took a bit of an L when he got um, eaten immediately by Cerberus. But... <laughs> immediately. <laughs> Like, we have to remind ourselves of wing shoes. And the way that we do that is through this, like, super, super gorgeous, pristine, like, quick, like, fly up through the air. Oh, wow. The stunts cooked on that one. High, high, swirling fog. All of the swirling mists of gray that we get through this to partially obscure Cerberus. Because we're on the banks of the river. It was almost like something angelic. It was very, like, picturesque. Like, this angel lifting Percy up. Yes, it looked Mm -hmm. like a a painting. It looked like a painting. I think something so interesting about Annabeth Again, I will say this. Annabeth has sacrifice complex. I do think that it's because everything she witnessed with Thalia and she witnessed is like badness, the epitome of a hero. It's just sacrifice. And yeah. then the scene is like, you take Percy up because she puts like the mission above everything else. And it's like, I will figure out some way to get up. And she's watching Percy just land to safety. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. The important thing plot wise about this is that we lose the pearl in the dog. Grover loses the pearl. Mm-hmm. As soon as they put those pearls in their pockets, I was thinking Polar Express. I was like, you don't know yes. there's not a hole in your pocket. Yes. Why don't you do that? Too. Your pocket doesn't have a zipper. Why don't you put this in a safe, zippered compartment? No, they should have put the pearls in Annabeth's like, side purse. In Annabeth's satchel. A pearl of wisdom here. <laughs> wow, wow. But the fact that the pearl is in the dog, I think this poses. When is the dog getting on talk? <laughs> when is Cerberus going to pop up on the beach? I really feel... Like, there's an alternate version of this story in which Cerberus participates in the final battle. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> no. Like, we ride Cerberus. There is a post-credit scene that should have existed in this episode. Like, the Ares fight happens, and then Cerberus pops up on the beach and, like, eats Ares. I love that. <laughs> I would be not mad at that at all. Too much Avengers, like, we have a Hulk, a Hulk comes out and he just smashes Loki, but it's just Serbia's, like, throwing Ares around like a rag doll. And we have, yes. like, Chase come up being like, Serbius. Put my brother down. Yeah. Not again. <laughs> We're gonna take an ad break here while they go to commercial break, and then we'll be right back. 
All right, welcome back, everybody. It's act two. We're in the second flashback. Sally in the principal's office with Percy sitting outside. This is where I'm starting to say we're starting to transition out of Percy's perspective and into Sally's perspective because we start with the shot of Percy sitting outside of the office listening. But then we cut to this profile shot of Sally where you can see her sitting in the chair in the principal's office and baby Percy is like in the blurred out background, just smaller in the back of the screen. And I don't feel like he can hear everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. So it's like we're cutting into Sally's perspective here for the first time as we get this brilliant and emotionally affecting scene of her arguing with the principal. I think it is really cool how it parallels the Jimmy has with Kronos and the traitor. And I think it kind of was put into a different perspective. The Headmaster's office isn't just a scene from like the first episode where side where Percy feels powerless and betrayed by Grover, but it's also a site of like things happening that he can't quite fully grasp or understand because it's not mm. for him to understand just yet. Oh, and it's a bigger picture with authoritative <laughs> figure. You guys are so smart. <laughs> like, it's like this very like this is a jar and it's like him like looking through like this in the door is exactly how Percy is when he's watching in the dream. I think that's just so fascinating to see these like parallels how like even Kronos wasn't just like maybe tapping into an older memory of Percy for this because mm. I was thinking what if it, it was just the the headmaster scene but that wouldn't make sense because it's shot so differently but this feels like the bigger parallel how like maybe Percy saying how look your mother abandoned you and he's putting in that sight of like she wanted to get rid of you she yeah. couldn't stand to have you with you like implicitly he's putting that in yeah. onto her to alienate him, maybe emotionally, which is why he chooses that form and that mm-hmm. kind of like mise-en-scene. Yeah. I really thought Sally's character was brilliantly fleshed out here. And something I really liked, and we've touched on this a little bit when we talked about Sally, the non-dormatification of Sally mm-hmm. Jackson mm-hmm. is in full effect. We see that Percy is the way that he is in so many ways, just because of how his mother raised him. And there's so much I think we take for granted about Percy's character when you read the book for the first time. Like, it's just understood that he is a good person. He'll fight for the for the little guy. He'll like represent the voices that he feels like are not heard and brought to the table. And I think because, again, he's an unreliable narrator, we don't necessarily see the connection to Sally and how she raised him and how strong of a woman she is and how she is stubborn and how she will fight for what she thinks is right, including with this principle. There's this line that's just like chilling where she's like, so that's not going to happen. We're going to sit here until we figure out what's right and we, we see that to eye with the principal and I think that that comes out again in a really good and it's a good idea to have a flashback to depict that and then one last small note is like when the principal was like he's been drawing paintings of a horse I was like (laughs) what do you mean like I probably did that all the time when I was in elementary school but I think if anything it was actually I thought about it a lot and I was like maybe that was intentional maybe it's meant to show how rigid some of the you know schooling requirements are for children that age and, and obviously an undercurrent of all of this is like Percy's neurodivergence um and I think that's really well done and I think it was actually quite illuminating to have the conversation with the principal and his perspective on Percy's um learning issues and everything in this episode I think it was really well done jumping off of that like Percy is the way he is because of Sally Jackson and then what I love most about the books and how they demonstrate this <laughs> in the series mm-hmm. is that Percy does not care about authority. I think he has a very, he has a very much an authority issue. I think seeing that with Sally being like, you're telling me to leave. I just drove all the way up here. This isn't right. Telling off the principles, like he drew a horse. So what? I think that flipping, like just because you're in a place of power does not mean you're right. I think that's exactly how Sally raised him to be, to question things. 
something I, I don't know if I'm going to articulate this well, but like having this scene referenced directly back to the montage that starts out the entire mm-hmm. season at the beginning of great. the first episode when it's like, even though he's saying like, you don't want to be a half-blood, blah, blah, blah. It is like very romanticizing and it's very fantastical <laughs> and it's setting the scene for everything as we're hearing the scoring and like Walker is doing this awesome voiceover. And then now we're in episode seven. Like I said, we're switching into Sally's perspective and we're getting this much more grounded, painful look at what was going on back then. Mm. We're getting Hermes, do you know what it's like to love somebody so much and hurt each other look at everything that we already learned. And it's forcing us to really take a more grounded perspective, looking back at all these things and looking at where we are now and our relationship with Sally. And like, as cool as this world is and as cool as mythology is, Mm -hmm. like she is the one who's having to take care of him and make sure that he's safe. And like Kurt made a great point in the note saying like, we have Mm -hmm. to be hungry for Sally when we get to Hades' palace. Like we have to be thankful for her and all the work that she has done and like think about how much she means to us so that we want to get her back so bad. And then when we don't get to get her back, it is, it is that much more painful Wow. Yeah, at the end of the I agree. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a drama like that. This, this mm-hmm. is such a good use of time in the series to show why Percy is the way he is, why the things that matter to him matter to him. Mm-hmm. I think that's like, it, it's, it's the best decision I think that the series did is to really expound on this relationship between Percy and Sally and not just mm-hmm. in this, like we said, one note way, oh, she's my hero. Oh, she's so perfect in a really mm-hmm. tense way to actually show like the yeah. reality of it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it goes back to something we were talking about earlier, like Percy Jackson, I think is just a very timeless piece of work because there's something that appeals to every demographic, every generation that reads it. If you're young and you mm-hmm. read it, you gravitate to the relationship between the, the characters and the friendship and the, the heroism of it all. And when you mm-hmm. read it, when you're older, you find yourself actually really like feeling for Sally. I don't know how I would react if I you know, had a child with a godly parent who by nature had to be absent and the child was struggling to fit in and you feel for different characters in different positions of your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that what they did is so smart in creating the show to be similar to the books where it's relatable to people from every generation. There's something you can really find yourself rooting for, you know? Mm-hmm. I literally was shocked, shocked when I, at the end of the episode, found myself being like, ah, oh, yeah, I guess Poseidon can't interfere. I was like, wait, what? No, <laughs> that was me. No, that was me. Because I cause I remember after the Hermes scene, I was just like, you're taking notes from Poseidon. <laughs> I was just like, it's like, a, it was like two dumb girls telling each other exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Telling each other exactly. <laughs> that is Hermes and Poseidon. It's like, Ooh. I was like, wait, maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe he can't interfere. And I was like, no, no, don't, don't no. sympathize with him. Don't just because he's Toby, Toby Stevens. Stevens. English accent. <laughs> <laughs> it is Toby Stevens' accent. It is his accent. It's me being 20 old and being like, yeah, we do have to make sacrifices and the world isn't black. The setup is good for it. Again, it's like many series. It's not that hard to write a story about a little boy with a sword. You have to like, you have to have an angle. You need to have something that you were saying about like the modern condition through the work for it to like endure across generations. And so for this, in the adaptation for them to decide that like in the episode where we in, we're in the underworld and we are the most completely detached from the like real world parallelisms that we're going to insert this, these like hard stops to the action to do the like classical drama flashback. I'm explaining your relationship with your mother. We are like reexamining what it means to make a hard choice and how you think through those decisions. Who can say that? Who can say, who can claim that mantle? Very few. John Steinberg, (laughs) 
You delightful <laughs> little man. Honestly, which is so great. Like, going up to point is like making a hard stop to really reconcile like with these like hard truths. But like, with Sally, I think it's also again like you guys made this point in the series, but like it's about relationship with the gods and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Are these gods not setting aside like stipends or like what is it called like <laughs> alimony for these kids? Support, <laughs> Here yeah. it is. Remind yourself about the payments. Remind yourself about the child support payments. So and that sorry. is how. We stay anti-Poseidon. <laughs> you couldn't spare a drachma. That's what I'm saying. Exactly what I'm saying. What are the resources for parents? Where is the infrastructure for the world these kids live in? I think that's what's great about the show. It's like you're getting a reality check on the underworld and all this mm-hmm. stuff. We're also yeah. getting a reality check on the above world of what it's like to be a parent to these kids. These mm-hmm. parents yeah. have no idea what they're getting into yeah. when they're like romancing a god. But there's yeah. a reality check of like you're pounding the door of these institutions letting my kid in and also like sally's character something that really comes through in these flashbacks is just what a force to be reckoned with she is that she's like obviously mm-hmm. queen advocating. amongst mortals and that's why poseidon liked her so much best of wives why. best of women <laughs> seriously he like he he broke he a pact to be with her and the reason i think and it, it's very interesting but like we see the in in how she's handling these situations probably why poseidon fought to be with her specifically and wanted to be mm-hmm. with her even after the mm-hmm. relationship ended because when she's side by side with him she is equally as powerful in an exactly. argument as he is mm-hmm. you know oh, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't exactly. <laughs> this, this goes back to the pearls but I think what's great about what I love about the series and why I was thinking about why four pearls why four pearls when I was at the end of episode six but I think it's Poseidon recognizes how much Percy needs his mother he sends four pearls because he's like, Percy needs his mom. He he, uh, he loves Sally. He knows how important Sally is to his development as a hero, as a person, as just like, even like the, the mother of his child. And he's like, I'm going to try, if I can't save her myself directly, I'm going to make sure that you can at least save your mother. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's you, you need that more than you need me. Yeah. You need your mother. Yeah. And not to spiral too much, but thinking about how strong Sally is and how strong you have to be to hold your own in a relationship with the God and how strong, yeah. like all of these characters, mortal parents have to be like the strongest, most incredible, fearsome mortals ever, which makes me think of May mm-hmm. and how amazing wow. and like for, for, what is Fort, fortitudinous? Yes. <laughs> Heck yeah, SAT vocab, let's oh, go. Yeah. <laughs> How strong of a person she must have been, so similar to Sally Jackson, and for Hermes to watch a woman like that no longer oh. be able to be herself must really have scared Poseidon into not interfering with Percy's life. It really, exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, just going off to like how like the strength of these parents, you think about like Sally's a force of nature or Poseidon's a force, literal force of nature. And I think May Casella's ability to make Hermes stand still and consider raising his own kid. This this guy who's associated with speed, with always traveling, to stand still and ra- who wants me to have a close relationship with his son. And even like Frederick Chase, like when we get to see him in the- You Titans mean William Earth, Jackson Harper? Girl, you know, I'm, so, I'm telling you, Erica, you know, I'm campaigning hard for this. I was going to say, it's got to be. Episode, it's got to be William Jackson Harper. You cannot tell me Chidi is not in a best yes. I mean, like, when, I, when I think about Frederick Chase, his his picture pops in my head now. Like, at this point, yeah. like, I cannot divorce it anymore. Yeah, with the Chidi glasses for sure. Yeah. Anyways, but like, Frederick being able to charm Athena with his own cleverness and wit, like wit and how like, these parents do compliment the gods and how they're able to make them 
honestly, like, I'm so sorry. Like, you pulled a god. Like, that's like forever. <laughs> Sally Jackson pulled Louis Poseidon, queen. Seriously, but also to the point earlier about the deterioration of these strong mortals. Like, I think yes. about Talia and Jason's mother, and that mm-hmm. story Aww. paralleling May's story. Mm-hmm. How, and mm-hmm. it's it's common. It's like these strong mortals, rom- you know, are romanced by these gods, and then they are left to pick up the pieces, both in their lives. I mean, in the case of Frederick Chase, like he and Athena never, you know, without getting too graphic, like they never even engage in the activity that produces children. And he is like expected to 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 raise this child. And for some people, that in conjunction with the fact that they're showered with the, like, I'm just trying to think about, okay, imagine Greek mythology is real. Imagine all of the things that I've ever wanted to be real are true. Poseidon comes to me, tells me that he thinks I'm beautiful. We are romantically involved. I now know this world we're pulling to you exist. Out of that, we're pulling you out of that situation. <laughs> yes. we are, my friends we are, are hard pulling me. you out. Don't pull too hard now. It's still Toby Stevens. Don't pull too hard. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me have my moment with Toby Stevens. But, but I'm trying to think about like the aftermath of that. Now I know that the Greek gods exist, A. B, I will never see them again, if unless it's like in a very traumatic situation and pertinent to like the raising of our child. And I have no powers. I have no, none of the benefits that come to knowing about this world. I only have yeah, to suffer the consequences. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. We talked about a lot of this already. Like, you know, we're in the fields of Asphodel. We talked about mm. being bound by regret and why Annabeth is the one who gets bound and not Percy and Grover. But this does also set up a fun uh, new dynamic for the rest of the episode. Not new, but a fun separate dynamic for the rest of the episode where it's just Grover and Percy to finish out the mm-hmm. underworld yeah. quest. And I think that's worth talking about, like why we would do that, what it what it adds to the rest of the episode. I loved the decision personally. I feel like um, I love Percibeth probably more than I love most things in this world. But <laughs> in general, when I've read The Lightning Thief, like every time I reread it, I find myself so connecting to Grover. And I feel like Grover and Percy's yeah. relationship mm-hmm. is one that's actually quite crucial to the rest and the development of the future books. Like their yeah. empathy link in The Sea mm-hmm. of yeah. Monsters. And I, I, I'm very grateful that the series is actually like doing the work and establishing that relationship more by mm-hmm, showing mm-hmm. how they're bonding. And, you know, and, and Grover also, what I love about the series is that they're fleshing out the like part of his character that contributes to quests, like his experience mm-hmm. with Ares, for example. Mm-hmm. Again, Grover was Percy's first friend, first person who felt like he wasn't alone. And I think it's so much important to have that exactly. in the world. The symmetry. And he's going to get his mom back. And Grover was there for that. Grover is like literally like, Percy's I mean eventually this becomes Annabeth later in the series but this is right now like Grover is Percy's link to life to the world his strongest emotional connection at this point and it's good to know like he has someone who's there who's also an adult in the room I think when Percy finds like the lightning bolt is in his bag I think Percy's terrified I don't think he knows what to do but then Grover to be like I know we should finish the quest but we're gonna save your mom and it's important to have someone who's there Mm -hmm. who's like yeah you're freaking out there's a lot going on and then you're scared but we're going to do this to say we're doing this. Especially because that's why Percy chose Grover in the first place to come on this quest with him because he knows what Percy (laughs) is really there for to get his mom back. Exactly. And he's the one who told him about his mother. He's the one who said in the Mm -hmm. first, in like, in the scene when Chiron and Dionysus wouldn't, he's like, your mother's in the underworld. You can, we can save them. They're telling you one story, but here's, here's something else you didn't know before. And I like that because from the beginning, 
Grover always knew what was the important thing to Percy yeah. mm-hmm. and did what he could to make those things happen. Yeah. I, I think that it's worth noting like a few like more technical, like dramaturgical elements for why this is works. Like it feels right to have Grover and Percy together. I think that it helps a lot with our pacing and the tension that we're building for one of the pearls to disappear for us to like crunch down on the amount of possibilities that are available to us. Like we know intellectually already at this point that only three people are making it out, but for Annabeth to leave the like math of like three people, two pearls feels and is worse than like three, like four people, three pearls, you know? Yes. Also, (laughs) this is a side, sorry, side note about the pearls and everything. I think the reason like in the books, when Percy, it becomes down to like the three pearls and mm-hmm. like the four people, and he he realizes because each of them like tries Grover and Annabeth both volunteer to be the one who's left who's left in with Hades, and Percy says, "I realize these two people could never betray me," which I think what they're doing in the series, which is interesting, is that when we don't know what Annabeth, I think we know, but like narratively, explicitly, we do not know what Annabeth's regret is, and there's a look mm-hmm. that Percy gives Annabeth. And it's almost as I can almost hear Medusa's voice saying, She's gonna betray you, you know, as he's looking at Annabeth. I think he tries to just wait because he wants to trust Annabeth so much, but there's a slight doubt. And then we have Annabeth go away. And the viewers know that Grover is always gonna be loyal to Percy. Percy knows that too, which I think it's interesting that Percy is with the person he trusts the most and what the mm-hmm. viewers know who trusts the most, but mm-hmm. it leaves in the question about Annabeth because she's not there to when they make the decision to leave his mom there to volunteer to be left behind to prove herself to be Mm -hmm. trustworthy too to the audience yeah Mm -hmm. we get to the sands of tartarus i wanted to shout out one of our patrons ethan who said that it's like it gets sandier the closer we get to chronos because he's like turning this into the sands of time i thought that was cool or it's like he's stuck in an hourglass or something like that it's also Mm -hmm. i think it might have been amanda our patron who was like this is also where percy is having his dreams where he's in these like sand dunes which is really cool i didn't notice that that was awesome i didn't notice that either that's a really good detail yeah they get the bolt in the backpack. They figure out that it must have been Aries who put it there. We're still going to go and get your mom. Every time they say, let's go get your mom, it just gets better and better. I, I want Yes. Like- and it's that exact phrase. Like we were repeating that exact line several times up until this climactic last one from Grover. In the last moment, it, it's a slight, the, the, the implications are different. Like previously, it was maybe like a side quest. But at this point, like, literally, it is oppositional. Like, if we go to Hades' palace now, we are doing something that is, like, putting the bolt in jeopardy as opposed to increasing our likelihood of finding the bolt, and we're only doing this to get the mom. And that's why I like the fact that the solstice passed already, because then it really just makes it very clear his mom is now the priority. Instead of it being mm-hmm. two things at once, it's just that, like, oh, we'll handle the God stuff when we get to it, but, like, the biggest thing right now is getting his mom, because we can do that right now. Yeah. From the sands of Tartarus, we cut back to a flashback. This is us entering into the diner. Once upon a time for real. (laughs) With the ice cream sundae, character flashback. This is where Asriel beautifully delivers the, why are you trying so hard to get rid of me? I would never do this to you. And she says, let me go over and pay. And this is where we're definitely switching out of baby Percy's perspective and into Sally's perspective because she's like walking Mm -hmm. into another room where he isn't Mm -hmm. and that's exciting what's gonna happen Ooh, I grew up intersection of like the Percy Jackson show with like Once Upon a Time and Gallivant just (laughs) very core 2010 things that Mm -hmm. shaped my personality Mm -hmm. I also keep wanting to say baby Percy 
as in like baby Peach or baby Mario, you know? Because Azrael yes. uh, really is just like a little baby version of Walker. He is. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, we're in Act 3. We're going to Hades' palace from here. Everything about this palace is stunning, gorgeous, perfect, beautiful, amazing. The upside down of it, the dark stone of Ooh. it, the way that it is gigantic and completely empty. Unfurnished. Unfurnished. I, I, it's like in the book where Percy describes like Hades' palace as being like the anthropical to like the Olympus. Yeah, and I love how it's literally, literally upside, upside down. down. <laughs> there were a few things that really stood out to me about this scene where Percy and Grover go to Hades Palace. Obviously, the first thing is that it's just Percy and Grover like we were just talking about. I think that this mm-hmm. is a really fulfilling decision because it lets us have this full circle moment. Um, you know, Percy's entrance into this entire world began through his friendship with Grover. Grover's friendship and, and the mm-hmm. genuine relationship that exists between them is a big reason why he felt trust and even entering this world to begin with, yeah. and we see that he's a character that's highly motivated by relationships and not necessarily duty at this point in the story. He's going to do things not just because they're the right thing to do, but because they're the right thing to do for him and the people he loves. Mm-hmm. And so it does make sense that, you know, he's walking side by side with the person that he started the journey with when the quest ends, quote unquote, ends. The difference, obviously, is that in the beginning, Grover had more knowledge about the world that they were entering. And here they're actually both entering the unknown, Mm -hmm. which puts them on more of this like equal footing at this point in the story. That's also accentuated by how dramatic and scary the underworld is depicted to be in the series. Um, We've already talked a little bit about how vast the underworld is, how many different terrains we see. I think they're picking up a little bit more on references of hell that you would find in classical mythology or almost even in the Judeo-Christian imagination. So this idea that hell is this really punitive, scary place, it's dark, literally very dark. Obviously, that is how it's depicted in the Percy Jackson universe, but there are moments of more you know, humor and levity in the way that it's described. For example, the description of it being a TSA line to enter, you know, hell in the first place. But I think what almost depicting it like a Dante's Inferno does is it immediately plays on stereotypes of hell that the viewer is familiar with and it sets the tone quickly without having to waste precious moments giving exposition on, you know, Elysium and the Isles of Blessed and all of the different areas of hell. And I think what it also does really well is something that the Percy Jackson universe does really well in general, which is building up expectations so that they can be subverted. Um, So a great example of this is what's happening here in Hell. We're seeing Hell as this incredibly terrifying place. You know, Grover and Percy walk up to this intimidating palace together. They're waiting an audience for Hades, the god of dead, who has been, you know, hyped up as this scary, intimidating guy. And then out walks Jake Duplass as Hades, who is sarcastic (laughs) and funny and self-deprecating. And his floppy, floppy wrists. Nothing that you would expect from the god of dead. And there is an innate humor in that that is really satisfying. And that's something that the Percy Jackson universe cinematically just does really well. Like it builds up these expectations only to defy them. I just love how they have him actually walk into the scene and it takes so long. It really, one, heightens the vastness of the room. And two, I felt so lonely. And I felt yes. like that's just what, mm-hmm. like, this is a person who's, like, been made to stay out of the family. Mm-hmm. He is truly an outcast by the family. And he said, well, I'm just going to build myself in my own palace. Yes. And he mm-hmm. did it, but there's none of the warmth, none of the love. Mm-hmm. There's none of 
the brightness and like liveliness that comes with Olympus. This is an important question that I think we want to talk about, which is that in this characterization of Hades, where he's saying like, oh, I don't go up there. Like, God, they have the drama. Like, I'm drama free. Are you? Is he lying? Yes. I think the giant vast emptiness of his palace is like important to highlight the fact that he isn't actually coping as well as he wants to pretend he is. He's mm-hmm. pressed. He built a whole palace upside down. He's pressed. It's living rent-free in his brain. Interesting thing I was thinking about that came to mind when I was watching this and goes to the point. A lot of people forget, but Hades is the oldest child. He Mm -hmm. was swelled first by Kronos. He spent the longest time. And I think that's kind of like in like sometimes in mythology, this is why he's kind of more wispier. Like he's oldest. He's more familiar with his dad than any of them. He's one closest to his dad physically in the space of Artemis. He is constantly reminded of the threat. He was the first to witness the full brutality of Kronos. He's mm-hmm. very, very well aware of what's going to happen. And as oldest, he kind of takes the responsibility of, you need to give it to me. I need to take this because my younger brothers are fighting, but I've got perspective. Yeah, that's that's true. There is an important moment where Percy and, and Hades haven't fully like reconciled what's going on. They're like talking past each other still. And Walker delivers this little monologue that is very strongly reminiscent of Annabeth's monologue in episode five, where Annabeth is like, basically instructing Hephaestus about what is wrong with Olympian justice and relationships. And Percy is giving a similar version, wherein he basically is saying, like, I'm going to state all of your beliefs and what I've learned about how the Olympians work, and I'm going to tell you that they're wrong, and I'm just going to implore you to (laughs) behave differently. He was right. It's wrong, and I won't do it. So all I can ask you to do is the right thing, too. It's clearly not going to work on Hades, but it's so... They had to set up the parallels. And it does feel at this point like something that Percy would try. I have to say, my favorite line in the entire show has to be, I seldom cahoot. Because it is, I love that. So it is brilliant. The way that you can just hear Nico D'Angelo saying that too. Mm-hmm. Like father, like son. <laughs> and I think there was something else about how Hades was characterized in this scene that really stuck with me. You know, we see Hades almost overcompensate by talking about how much he has down in the underworld, how vast his kingdom is, how beautiful his palace is. But then we also see, and I think this is some really phenomenal acting by Jay, we see that as soon as Percy talks about Kronos, he is immediately scared because he is alone. He immediately says, and it's, it's, it's literally instantaneous. This is the god of death hearing that Kronos might be reawakened. And he's immediately asking Percy, a 12-year-old child, for the master bolt because he needs to protect himself because he knows nobody else will. Mm-hmm. This man might, in his heart, just be lonely. He might want a companion. He's lonely. See that there's nobody else that he can really talk to in this entire palace except for these kids. Maybe that's, heck, maybe that's why he even had Percy's mom frozen just waiting <laughs> in the living room for someone to talk to. It's giving you, like, he's a little bit funny. He's pleasant. Like, it's subverting a lot of our expectations, but, like, not in a complete... It's not like a 180, you know? Like... Hades is giving you someone who is like ruthlessly practical, but not at the cost of being like a little bit funny and like perfectly reasonable yeah. to talk to. And like, he's not going to like hurt you just because And a little can. fabulous. And a little fabulous. What is it? The helm of darkness? The helm, helm of, of darkness. darkness. I-, I felt seen. 
I love it. Okay, in our live stream last night, Jake was like, oh my God, it's the triptych. And I was like, what triptych are you talking about? And yeah. since then, I have gone into a YouTube deep dive on the Garden of Earthly Delights Hieronymus Bosch painting. Yeah, I think you need to give us like 30 seconds on, on, on this painting. 30 seconds on the Garden of Earthly Delights since I became an art history buff in the last 24 hours. <laughs> I did not. I'll put a bunch of stuff in our show notes if people want to deep dive into this. And I wish I wish we could just talk to Dan Henna and be like, so why did you choose this, huh? But it makes a lot of sense because um, like this painting coming about in a time, like in the Middle Ages. Like late Middle Ages. Late Middle Ages. Burgeoning into the Renaissance. Burgeoning into the Renaissance, but at a time when like Christianity was very big you know and like some mm -hmm. people think that like Hieronymus Bosch was kind of like a precursor to uh surrealism mm -hmm. but the difference between his work and surrealism is that at the time that he was painting all of this stuff was very much thought of as real mm -hmm. Jesus Christ is real you know hell is the consequence if you sin um and this being a painting that like talks about like sin and like the descent into sin and all of that being mm -hmm. considered real and that going in this very real underworld is a fun and smart choice. And it's also just fabulous. And I love the idea that Hades would really appreciate like a unique and detailed yeah. take on sin and yeah. like debauchery. And that's the thing about Hieronymus Bosch is that a lot of these ideas about like if you look at the painting, which you should look at, it's amazing. It's also in the episode. That's why we're mentioning it. it like they act as though the triptych is hanging on Hades' wall and it's the only piece of art in the entire palace. Hieronymus Bosch are like inventive. You can see these like spires and like bird monsters and things that you probably have never seen in any way other than things that are derivative specific references to this one piece of art. And I think that's so fabulous. And Hades would have an appreciation for that. He would be like, not that many people are creative about what like true monstrosity and demonic um, afterlives might look like. But yeah. this person was genuinely creative. Some historians think maybe because he ingested a bunch of like precursors chemically to LSD and was like deeply hallucinating. <laughs> like his artistic life but whatever it takes those like colorful <laughs> spherical spires in the back of this who who would think of that why yeah. you know it, it's genuinely puzzling and he was actually it seems like by all accounts he was like legitimately metaphysically afraid of these things that he was envisioning <laughs> that's <laughs> <Poor metal. God. laughs> and, and hades would be like and that rocks and that's why it's going in my tiny living room where i have two sofas one blanket and one rug and a statue of your mom that i just sit with all the time like do you think it's been in his living room since it got down there or did he like move it out here because he knew the kids were coming I think he, he talked to Sally? He would live for the drama Hades, Hades lives for the dolls. We've got, we've got guests coming. We've got guests coming. Quick, get the boys, like, mother and case. Bring dolls. her out. Bring her out. And then it's like, eh, yeah. eh, on the palace floor. It looks like the exact same art design as the gold statue that they did of Walker in episode five. Yes, and both I of them, a little bit crunchy. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. The budget went elsewhere. But I think what's interesting, I was surprised about initially was when Hades immediately offers sanctuary. At first, yes. I was kind of confused. But then I thought about, like, this is the beauty of the series, being able to write this in retrospect of having the, the five books done about like the last time his experience with having uh, a spouse of a god or like the mother of a godly child, godly's child and the prophecy mm. and what happened, especially in context yes. of Zeus. And what he tried to do for Nico and Bianca's mother. Mm -hmm. He offered it to her. He yeah. offered her, begged her. Yes. And what he could not do, what he could do is save his kids. We could not save 
their mother. And I think he sees in Percy because he sees his children, how much he loves his mother. And that like, I cannot Mm -hmm. save you from the wrath of Zeus, but I can shield you in my castle. Like I offer to do with my own, with the the mother of my Mm -hmm. children too. Yeah. It was just such a shift because Hades in the book was not like in the first book wasn't like, Oh, chill my palace. Yes. I think it's great. We have hindsight of what Hades has been through. He truly loved their mother. Exactly. And he tried, he tried so hard. He tried so hard. <laughs> He's not a bad guy. He's not a bad guy. It is a late book characterization of Hades. I mean, he did curse an oracle. He did curse the oracle. And then make Castellan is that way because of that. Listen, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has those days. I mean, like, I, what, what we're getting out of this is that Hades is someone who, like, has, like, a lot of emotions that are at the top yeah. of the character. Which is, like, he, he he's willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. He's willing to go out on a limb and help people who he doesn't have to help. But it does also mean that probably we'll be able to see the other side of that, which is being incredibly vindictive and holding grudges Mm -hmm. later on. Being so emotionally empathetic, I think also it's a double side of like, when those emotions get crossed, when those things get betrayed. And I just, I really like this characterization of strong characters in the Percy Jackson franchise. I mean, we get that with Annabeth too. Like Annabeth is Mm -hmm. arguably the, the strongest character in the entire franchise. And even she has this vulnerability that is inherent in being lonely and needing human connection. And I never thought that I would connect Hades and Annabeth in this way, but I do feel like it's apt. Mm-hmm. We don't see Annabeth and Hades in the same room. Is it because they're the same person? They both need <laughs> and hiding it. Secretly, deeply lonely. <laughs> Shutting out their family, but secretly, deeply lonely. Yeah. She is so lonely. This girl with Percy saying you don't want to be your friend. That's her regret. And that's why she rooted to the fields of asphodels that she's been lying to them about being Hades this entire time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. She's on this quest to find out if Percy is the lightning thief because she's secretly Hades. I love yeah. that. <laughs> the other line of dialogue in the scene that we cannot gloss over is this only ends one way. The only question is how difficult you make it, which is exactly, this is exactly what Sally says to Percy at the beginning of the episode in the car. So what does it mean that Hades says it right now to Percy? I think that this question really boils down to the core of Percy's character, which is, you know, the entire time that he's in this new world, everywhere he turns, people are constantly telling him, this is just the way that things are. This is the way things have always been, literally for centuries and centuries. And something in Percy's character tells him it doesn't have to be this way. We take it for granted when we read the books because we know, we feel like we know Percy, that he is a good person. Like when it comes down to it, when he could ask for the world, he really does champion the little voices that people, you know, aren't hearing as strongly as the, as the louder voices. Like he, he's going out of his way to protect people that he feels need to be protected. And I think that's just a testament to Sally's strong raising of him but i really do think that percy is like the definition of making things difficult literally time if they need to be difficult like he's not scared for the fight and i think we just see that in the way that you know people even react to him they call him impertinent Impertinent. that's just percy you know he's he's our impertinent little percy and i think on a more philosophical level it also kind of pertains to this question of free will because Mm -hmm. it's something I've always wondered when I read the books you know what is the role of predestination and prophecy in the demigod's life obviously 
we know of the fates. Obviously, we know of the oracle. There are things that are meant to happen. But the beauty of prophecy is that there is interpretation in prophecy. There is still choice in the demigod's life. They can make the right choices that lead to better outcomes for the people they love and for the world at large. So obviously, free will exists in this universe. And obviously, Percy can be making the right decisions. He can be making the difficult but right decisions, even though there is a predestination. There is a set way that things usually happen. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's also interesting is that like while it's this, the, you, like you said, this refrain is always coming to person each time he tries to fight it. I think it's interesting the choice of well, what are you going to do about it? You know, it's one way. Are you going to just be in despair or are you going to still try to fight? Mm-hmm. He's always going to try and fight. He's always yeah. going to try to fight to help his friends, whatever he can do. Even when like third or fourth book, when he's like, Nico could potentially be the child prophecy. He's like, oh, no, I'm mm-hmm. going to fight that. I'm going to yeah. fight that to change it. If it's going to in one way, I'm going to make it so it's the best outcome for everyone involved. Exactly. There are like whole people's lives that exist on the margins, quote unquote, of these prophecies. And that's the, that's where he's operating. Albert Camus found dead in a ditch. Do you think that he, you thought the myth of Sisyphus did something? Ah, uh, this is <laughs> supplanted. This raises the bigger question of like, do you think Sally knows about the greater prophecy? Yes. Let us use that to segue into the Poseidon Sally scene. The scene, this scene has been teased for a long time. I think at several points in the early press process, before we'd seen literally any episodes, it was revealed that there was going to be a Poseidon Sally scene, a flashback that was going to be very impactful. And, you know, all season, I think people have been looking for it. Is it going to be at Montauk? That was a good guess. It did not happen. I thought it was going to be when they first met. Yes. I thought it was going to be like a first Poseidon meeting, especially when people were teasing it with the Medusa scene about like, I'm yes. a survivor. And so I wasn't sure, like, oh my gosh, is this going to be like a, like a, we hate Poseidon kind of scene? And I think those all would have made a lot of sense. But what they've chosen to do is so interesting. And I genuinely think very unexpected, but so effective that we are catching Poseidon and Sally together at like a, not random, I think it's a pivotal point. It's a pivotal pivotal point point because she's making a big decision about Percy's life. Exactly. But it's not a point that is like super, I would say, obvious to people who are just thinking about the book in the abstract. Like, oh, what is like a key moment in Poseidon and Sally's relationship that we might want to see? Because this is a moment that we didn't know from the books existed. I think it's great because it doesn't just work on like the overall story of like the Percy being as like the some Poseidon and like this godly ramifications. But I think mm-hmm. also as a story about parents, we have two parents who are yes. separated, who aren't doing anything. They may have made a decision about what's the future for this child. Even exactly. though we're not talking, being on the same page about like, we both have someone's best for a child. Are we going to say like, put him in a private school, put him in a public school. Like, mm-hmm. Then that's what parenting is. Is it really co-parenting if Poseidon is not really there? But like, <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he doesn't really have power to make a decision one way or another here. But it is like a parenting discussion as contrasted to, say, a scene that is primarily romantic in nature, which is, I think, what exactly. most of the speculation was geared towards. It's very important and very creative that they chose to not go that route. And when you said like, that's why he, like, he can't really like, make a decision, and that's why I think it's so respectful. And as much as I would love to be on an anti-Poseidon train, when he says, like, I know I'm going to listen because you can't talk to anyone else about this and I can't do anything, but I'm going to give you the space, the agency to talk and I will listen and I'll give you my thoughts. But ultimately, the choice is yours because you're there on the day by day basis. You're on the front lines. Mm-hmm. I am just, you can't even see me right now. I can see, this is a deep perception where he can see her, but she can't see him. And all that power that gives him 
be able to watch all of this, but she can't even look at him. Percy can't mm-hmm. even see his dad. Mm-hmm. Like, he's watching them. And it kind of sense that like, he realizes that like he has such a benefit of being able to watch from the sidelines mm-hmm. unaffected. Yeah. And by that, he's like, I'm going to sit on the sidelines. You make the decision, but I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to give you the space you need to talk about it because you can't talk to anyone else about this. Also, there should be a mm-hmm. support group for demigod parents. I'm so yes. sorry. There should be a Facebook yeah. group. There should, I want to think that there's a Facebook group. I really do. Is anybody watching um, Invincible season two? Because this is kind of a... I am. There's like a lot of parallels. And this is this is one that they flush out on that show. Like the the wife of the, the superhero yes. support group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to shout out our patron, Dex, who said, you know how you're supposed to sacrifice the thing that means the most yeah. to you? And she is sacrificing her last ice cream sundae with Percy in order to, I know, right? Mm-hmm. In order to <laughs> make this call. I mean, logistically, it makes sense. You don't see the ice cream. She doesn't carry the ice cream sundae to the counter. But when the mm-hmm. previous scene opens up, it's like she's already having her tea. Like she's finished her yeah. ice cream already. And mm-hmm. Percy hasn't even touched his. And like, that's how long they've been sitting there. So I think mm-hmm. it all makes perfect sense. Yes. That's a great thing. So I was thinking about the sacrifice. It was something you're supposed to miss. And Percy sacrificed yeah. the, bl- the blue jelly beans because that's connection to his mom. Exactly. The parallel is very strong there. And they both do it in like a weird way where like when you imagine the Greek sacrifice, you're throwing a like hunk of whatever, like fatty mm-hmm. meat into a mm-hmm. fire. But Percy also in that earlier episode does a thing where like he has the one thing and it's in like a can that he throws the match into. Again, it's showing That's you beautiful. how like a learned impertinence, a, a learned <laughs> creativity and violation of traditional practices and norms. I think it's also subverting because it kind of reminds me of Percy saying, I'm going to make him come down. I'm going to make him see mm-hmm. us, see you. Yeah, and so exactly. And literally calling down Poseidon, like mm-hmm. saying, it's like, I know like this is how things are done. And you know, people pray for yeah. like offerings or like blessings, but I'm going to call you because your son, it, this is hard. And as you have like, yes. she's making a God do something. And that's something so, that's something only Sally Jackson can do. And that's mm-hmm. why Percy feels like he can, do these things too because yeah because that's what she's like shown him by example exactly yeah the way that the thunderstorm comes in as soon as poseidon like appears and that the thunder rumbles like right before he has to leave again i think is so interesting because the thunderstorm is in this weird place where like is it poseidon or is it zeus like it's probably more zeus because it's more of a sky thing but it like represents poseidon in a way because rain water um but (laughs) this whole thunderstorm thing made me completely rethink the logical scene from episode one because Mm -hmm. she knows like I really it wasn't hitting me that she really knows that that day Percy is coming home and they are going to have to go to Camp Half-Blood in my brain I don't know why I was thinking Mm -hmm. that she does this every time it rains and she goes and sits on the balcony she probably doesn't (laughs) she probably doesn't it's because this is like a day in which this is a particularly bad parenting day for her where she is going to have to separate from her kid and Mm -hmm. by going out to sit in the storm she doesn't choose to summon Poseidon today when she's Mm -hmm. driving her son off to camp doing this thing that she very much clearly doesn't want to do but she is like what if I just embrace this this chaos like knowing that this rain is coming from zeus or from you or from both of you and i'm just going to sit in it and like feel you here and feel your presence even though i know that you can't come down here physically you are still here in this moment through like release your inhibitions feel the rain on your skin (laughs) (laughs) is makes me like wow she was literally like having a conversation with him in that moment in her head with the gods being yes. in conversation with the gods. And I think that's something really cool and beautiful they do and using the fact that they are forces of nature. I know some people say that like, when you're a kid, oh yeah, when it's raining, it's like God is crying or there's tears. But I really wonder if like part of Poseidon's heart is breaking 
when you have these rain moments, it's stormy and cloudy because it's stormy and cloudy in his heart. He wants to help her so bad. It it is really hard for us to not go frame by frame through the scene because Uh it is just that good. I mean, there's so many realizations about like what this dynamic is, how much they've communicated. This probably isn't the only time they have ever, ever talked, I would assume, yeah. um, in Percy's childhood. It seems like Sally knows how to get him. Like, she, yeah. she she does it nonchalantly. She does it with the careless cool of someone who has done this many times. She doesn't even look to see if he's there. She doesn't look up. The camera doesn't look up. I'm very much in the camp that they can't look at each other because of emotional reasons, in addition to the oh, world-building yeah. reason that they can't look at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's both at the same time. For sure. It's also giving confessional. It's giving yeah. confessional where you, like, you, the, you can never look at the priest. You can look at God. Not the religious imagery. Oh, there's so <laughs> much of it. You're in love with God. I think last week I was like, when the writers wrote this, oh, they knew they were cooking. They probably typed it up and they were like, oh, baby, I just did it. That is how <laughs> I felt when Poseidon says, you have no one to say it to, and maybe that is the most unfair part of it. You say it, and I will listen. I know I know that they were like, oh, I just did it. That was the moment where I did swoon for Poseidon. I was like, exactly. It's almost too making Poseidon sound like a good man for me. I'm getting the priest <laughs> from Fleabag. Because I remember when... That, um, that, I mean, when you said confessional, that's the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when season two came out, and they, Andrew Scott and Phoebe Waller-Bridge were talking about like what makes the priest so hot. Like, yeah, it's because he listens. It's because he listens and because he's unattainable. And is also God. Same with Poseidon. <laughs> that is almost like, I want to say almost like, like a abusive relationship in some cases where like they isolate you from the ones that you love and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is helping bring me back to my anti-Poseidon because like you put her in this situation. You put her in this situation. Mm-hmm. Let's think about this. I wonder what Frederick Chase's parents, mind you, this is a man from Virginia. Now he's constantly black. What do you think about where this kid came from? Like, this girl Annabeth came from. Let's just, no <laughs> question. They come home and see Frederick with this baby. Like, where did they tell their friends and family about these kids? So, yeah. Oh, yeah, like, my ex, he went away. He never came back. Uh, I also want to shout out Sally's complete lack of respect for his side of the family. And mm-hmm. in the whole, I don't want to take him to camp. You don't want me to say why. She does not have respect for this, this nasty, toxic world of the gods. Also, bring it back to the camp. And why Poseidon may have been reluctant. I'm wondering in the timeline, has Thalia died yet? Because I wonder if Poseidon is thinking about... It's a very good question. probably around that time. Yeah, because I'm thinking like Poseidon thinking if if she tries to take him to camp, what if something like this happens and Percy dies? And he can't turn... What can you do? Turn him into sea foam? Like, I I don't know. I think think that it is the stronger dramatic choice for us to assume... (laughs) that Talia has already been turned into a yeah. tree. And also thinking about that and like seeing where like Percy is now with his mother. And if she took him to camp, when he would have met Annabeth a lot sooner, but I'm wondering would Percy have been like Annabeth? Would he have been like Luke? And thinking about how, because he's already thinking like, you want to get rid of me and all this kind of stuff. And thinking if he, they put him in a camp, how would he have turned out? I think he still would have been different, but less different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Poseidon is still very aware. I think he's aware of like the effects of like that kind of thing. And that's so interesting. Yeah. And again, I wonder what Hermes, I'm pretty sure Poseidon is at the bar with Hermes all the time talking about this. Telling <laughs> each other exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder also what it was like for Zeus when his daughter died and turned into a tree. And then like Poseidon potentially being in that situation. Is that also why he was hesitant to have Percy go to Camp Half-Blood? Yeah, mm, the, mm-hmm. he, he might that understand more and not push more for him to go to Camp Half-Blood at this age yet because bad things be happening. 
literally, have we read the big line yet? <laughs> no, I was going to say, I think it's time for us to say out loud the big line. The big line, which we refer to as the thesis of the entire, not season one, the thesis of the entire first five books and therefore five seasons knock on every wooden surface of this TV show. I want him to know who he is before your family tries to tell him who they want him to be. He is better than that. He has better things in him than that. Procrustis, Annabeth, the parallels are paralleling. Exactly, yeah. Annabeth says something close to this. She says he's better than that. It, it is similar. It, it is coming, I think, crucially from a slightly different perspective. And yes. one where she is trying to, she's using Percy as like not just a person who she is saying nice things about, but as a triangulation point in her journey and in the way that she's communicating with Hephaestus. In this moment, the fact that Sally is delivering this, she's delivering it confidently with an authority that we as the viewers are like basically 100% locked into at this point as a rebuke to Poseidon, who is symbolizing many things simultaneously here, but like predominantly like godliness, divinity. His family. And his family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thesis. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the fact that I, I want to, like, not only is that the thesis, but the reason why we have the thesis right now here in this moment is to gear us up for the very end of the story. And also to remind us, like, if the entire series is about this line and what kind of hero he is going to be, this season is about rescuing Sally, the woman who told him and taught him what kind of hero he can be. Mm -hmm. So we have to remind ourselves here, like what this is all about. And this is reminding us mm -hmm. what the season is about and what the entire series is about right now before we finish it off and tie everything off and know what is important as we're heading into the last episode. And that's why yeah. Poseidon gets some four pearls because he knows how crucial mm -hmm. Sally exactly. is. Exactly. He's yeah. going to be. And that's why he's like, you need your mother more than you need me. Yeah, this scene does a lot of pro-Poseidon work in the fact that he's listening to well. <laughs> but he also, like, I, I think that, like, what this is giving us and what all of Sally's decisions and the flashbacks leading up to this is giving us is a broader sympathy for the under... Is, like, putting all of the hard decisions on, like, a continuum together where we might be able to use the same framework to understand Percy's decision to go to Hades' palace, Percy's decision to leave without his mother, Sally's decision to send him to school, and then, like, ultimately, like, Poseidon's decision as like also like part of this spectrum of things where like if Poseidon had gotten more involved in Percy's life it probably would have meant that he wouldn't have been able to understand humanity in as deep a way and that was a decision that like Sally and Poseidon probably made in some sort of joint fashion you know like that that would be bad for him that like Percy needed to be able to soak up those those other things and like yeah I, I think this is the first time that we're really understanding in like a tangible tactile way how difficult it was to make that decision for everyone involved and how valid that decision really is <laughs> but i think it's interesting because it parallels when hermes tries to do the same thing and it does not end up the way that he had hoped it would it would he tries to stay mm -hmm. out of Luke's life so he can be a kid so that he can not integrate the prophecy because mm -hmm. he would and be sharing notes but unfortunately it does not end up the way that hermes thought it would with with yes. with luke resenting hermes for it and with luke ultimately taking the path that he takes yeah these lessons yeah. do not fully generalize. Luke's situation is obviously very different at home than Percy's yeah. is. I, I think sympathy for these decisions is also different from agreement with them. Like, I think that what yes. we're getting to with this yeah. is at the level of, I understand the logic that went behind Poseidon not being around. But I think that the rest of the series and like Hermes' parallel to this situation is going to force us to continue to ask whether or not that those like carefully, thoughtfully, caringly, 
weighed decisions were still correct. And that exactly. like, Poseidon and Hermes still might be misunderstanding what the choice yes. that is and whether or not there is yeah. a way for them to like be good, helpful members of their kids' lives without trying to squash out their humanity accidentally. Exactly. exactly. That's what's interesting. It's like, it is continuum and it is the fact that there's no one size fits all. Like you can't apply the same answer to parenting to each kid's situation. And we don't know what's going to happen in eight years from now, but if Percy is going to walk into Mount Olympus and say, what I want is for you to all pay more attention to your children, I think that mm-hmm. we are setting the foundation now for that yeah. to be mm-hmm. really, really rewarding. Mm-hmm. So he's experiencing the different levels of parenting through these different gods more than they were in the book mm-hmm. with Athena, with Ares, yes. with like her Hermes and even Hades and even Hephaestus. I think Hephaestus being the case of how they treat other gods too. I think that's mm-hmm. very key. Well, I don't think he gets a chance to really see that because he was stonified, but in general. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Getting yeah. to know each of these gods is just better setting us up for Percy to ask for that ultimately at the end of the series. Yes. Okay, guys, let's take it home. Let's take it home. We end up on the beach because Sally's like, do you want to talk to your son? And he's like, not right now. Thunderclap. That was great. The recognition of his godly responsibilities, whether that was Zeus or his own yep. thunder. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Time to wrap things up. Zeus said, he's like, maybe one day I'll, I'll go and see him when he knows who he is and where he belongs. And fate has revealed to him his true path. And all of this is being said voiceover as Annabeth is putting out her hand and helping Percy stand up on the beach where he belongs is with Annabeth. His fate is... Talking about his fate revealing itself as Percy is like staring Mm -hmm. at Annabeth as Annabeth looks over at Ares. I literally made a note about this in my book, in my notebook, because as I've been going through the season, like breaking down Annabeth, like she's so closely aligned with the concept of fate in like every episode where she's like saying, oh, she's waiting for a fated demigod. Or like mm-hmm. she said, she's explaining the concept of fate. Or when she expects that she sees the fate. She is so closely mm-hmm. aligned with the idea of fate. And with, well, we haven't mentioned the great prophecy yet, but like she knows a great prophecy. And fate lines with Annabeth's true path. Persebeth is Poseidon the Persebeth shipper. Yes. <laughs> yes. Many people are saying. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that's what he's saying. But I love the fact that shot-wise and what he's done is perfectly mimics episode two with him with her pulling up after Clarice's fight, even the way she walks and she lifts a hand up, and I think it's different yeah. than now. On level mm-hmm. ground, where versus before was mm. more raised, but both mm-hmm. of these scenes dealt with Poseidon claiming in his relationship with Percy, where he claimed Percy in the episode mm-hmm. two, and he was like, "Well, Percy is his own identity himself." I think that's so mm-hmm. really interesting to see about how both of that those align with Percy's identification with Poseidon and the kind of hero he's going to be in this godly world. And that Absolutely. is great. And it's great that Annabeth is there to witness both of it because I do think that she is kind of vital in both of those things where she recognizes that he's the son of Poseidon first. And I think also she's already claimed episode five, five. He's a certain kind of hero that's different from all of us. And she's there to support him in whatever fashion that is as his team member. And these shots are beautiful. Like I, we could not possibly say enough good things about the, the just... Every the single sunset. one, the painting, the sunset behind them, the like gorgeousness of the like light, um, like moisture of the beach as the tide is receding. And then like we, we get these shots of the kids like staring down the camera and then we get the humongous like beer stat, like great American wilderness looking wide shot of like Ares walking towards them. The kids look tiny. He has the big ass sword and, and 
Oh, oh. Not to mention the fact that Poseidon sent them back to Montauk. And that is a brilliant adjustment from the book for a bunch of logistical reasons. The quest is already done. They don't have to like worry about getting back to the East Coast. We might as well just zoop them back onto Montauk. And also it makes sense that Poseidon would send Percy Mm -hmm. and the kids back to the place where he met Sally to Mm -hmm. home because the sea, like what belongs to the sea will always return to the sea. And this is his safe place and he's going to fight this battle on his own turf. Also, a note about the looks. I think it's so interesting about like, when Leah survey Jeffries, her her eye acting, beautiful. On point, mm-hmm. because the way she communicates so much when she looks at Percy, looks at Aries, and the way that she directs the motion too, where she's looking up at um, Percy saying, I'm glad you're safe. And then she directs his gaze while she's looking at Aries. And Percy's like, what are you looking at? And he sees mm-hmm. it. And then she is just like, she's directing his attention. Like, I'm glad you're safe. We've got pressing matters to defend. And when she's like staring at me now, because she kind of steps in front of Percy too. And she's just like, I'm only have a knife. I'm only three apples tall. But like, I'm ready to rock if need be. Wow. And I'll be beside him. And the ocean is literally behind Percy in that final shot. But where's Toby Stevens? No Toby Stevens yet. Yeah. So we better hope he shows up. This entire time still delivering the voiceover monologue about being by his side. Physically. Does not appear to be by his side. Is the by his side in the room with us? The ocean's there, guys. But is he there? The ocean is there. Are his child support checks there? I Hmm. mean, not to be a a Poseidon defender, but the ocean's there, and I feel like that's a lot of power. Hopefully, the ocean will do some good stuff next week for us. Are you so excited? We are teeing up the Ares fight, and it looks great. We this whole time they've been like Ares fight, Ares fight, Ares fight. It looks phenomenal. This is going to be visually, emotionally. Perfect. We have a resonant. I love it. What's best about the scene is that it's very nonverbal for like the people in the actual scene. Mm-hmm. The look that Walker gives as he's standing on Aries, it kind of makes sense because in the books he describe how like he gets a lot angrier because of like the the force of like the Aries aura. But you can like really see it in his eyes. There is unbridled rage. There is loathing. Oh. Yeah. And I also, for a second, I'm like, maybe he can't take on Ares. I know he's like only like a child who's only been a demigod for a week. But I'm like, nah, he's going to do it. He's, he's, got, he's got the ocean right next to him. He's got this. <laughs> His father right beside him. All right. We have a closing question for Sophia. And that is about John Steinberg's tetrahedron of Percy Jackson showmaking. And we've actually talked about this quite a lot tonight. How do you feel that this episode succeeds in being a show for adults, a show for kids, a show for new fans, and a show for old fans? Well, I think this episode, this specific episode, is more a show for the adults. I agree. Because there's a lot of heavier themes about, like, death, and I think a lot about responsibility, about parenting, and over, like, these very ideological questions about what it means to be a good parent. But don't you feel like it's Percy, like, learning these things as well, though? Like, it's like a 12-year-old... Oh, yeah, 100%. But this is the HBO drama special episode. Like, let's be, this is this is the one for the parents. This was this for, for the parents. parents. And I do feel like as a kid, I think when I was, when I was 12, say if I was watching the show, I might not be able to pick up on those themes as well as I am as an adult. And I do feel like this is an episode for the parents who are watching saying, we get you, we see you. Like, parenting is hard. And I think it's this episode's okay for kids. I think it is does have a couple of moments of action and fun jokes, especially in the beginning. But it's very more ideological. I think the show as a whole, I think it's I think it does a great job being for both kids and adults because it lays in so many different themes, adult themes within kind of like simplistic plots and fun dialogue and snappy dialogue. As a show, show for fans, new and old, 
it does a great job of keeping me on my toes. I feel like I'm always like, what's going to happen next? I've read the books. I just reread the books. It's so fresh in my <laughs> mind, but I'm still like on the, like the edge of my seat. It comes into like the writing, but also making sure tweaking the plots and the ways adjusting it to keep it fresh, keep it new. So like the four pearls, it makes it extra sad when Grover loses one, which wasn't in the books. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, I know they're doing this framing thing where Annabeth, they might be framing Annabeth as potentially the traitor for like some of the new fans. And in my mind, I'm like, she's not the traitor. I'm defending her with my, my whole heart, but it's great because for people who have not read the books, it does set the whole idea. Like what if Annabeth tried to get his trust after the Medusa episode? And then it comes back to bite Percy because it's, you know, his whole thing about loyalty, his fatal flaw is being loyal. And then that's a great way to set up this tension for the new fans. Um, yeah. And I think it's just, it's all around great because I feel like it's I feel like I'm 12 years old every Tuesday night <laughs> I feel like I get transported back to middle school when I watch this show and it makes me so happy it makes me like I'm weak I'm experiencing it for the first time again and John Steinberg you did your thing with this you did your thing <laughs> you did your thing yeah. absolutely <laughs> Okay, guys, we have to do our noti noms for this episode. So what we do at the end of the episode is we Wait, that's, come that's up. that's amazing. We, we should have been doing that this whole time. The noti nom. <laughs> the nom noms. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're doing noti noms. Way better fun. <laughs> have we not been doing that? We haven't. I've just, well, I think we've been saying nominations this whole time, but we oh. hyper, we need to activate the, the additional levels of the fun. We need the okay. harmonic reverse. Anyway. We have to do our noti noms for this episode, our little salty, mm, little treats that we're we're picking up on in seaweed brain for this episode. Um, Carter, would you like to nominate and award something? I think that the award that I would like to give out is, ooh, this is going to be very controversial. But I think I'm going to have to say it. I, th- I think that the like best godly performance that we've seen so far for me is Jay Duplass as Hades. I'm really deeply nice. enjoying this. The, the, like so many of the line deliveries were either like hysterically funny. Like the, 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 the I don't cahoot line delivery was amazing. To me, like the thing that's standing out the most is the sanctuary line. I think that there's so much writing on that. That line is giving you characterization of Kronos implicitly. That line is giving you shifting the entire stakes of the series, but it's also characterizing Hades so well and so effectively in a way that is able to string together all the things that we have learned in our like two minutes or so of interactions with this god so far, but then also give us everything else we're going to need going forward about how this character operates. It's like dry. It's unexpected. I just think that it was like, it was a hard task. Hades to me is like one of the hardest roles to be able to get the balance for especially given how much creative adaptation is done from the book into this and i just think that it was i really enjoyed it and the voice (laughs) i agree absolutely i'm going to give the no wrinkles nori award for seamless editing transitions as we cut between flashbacks and the a plot in this episode because we haven't even talked about it but every single transition is so well done whether it's like a sound effect or it's like somebody talking to Mm -hmm. somebody or if it's that kansas line it's just so good because it like i said it could be so like kind of jarring jumping back and forth especially when we get out of percy's perspective and into sally's perspective but it's not it's just so well done and it's so clean and i know that that's like a combination of a lot of things storyboarding editing and everything else and it is chef's kiss and i don't know if our listeners noticed but we did lose jamaya like 30 minutes ago because she had to leave but we did get her nori nominations before she left so we're gonna play that audio right now nori nominations okay i'm going to give two because i literally cannot pick between 
these two elements of the show that I think were just so well executed. Okay, the first one is I want to give a shout out to the script writers because there was a lot of phenomenal and intricate writing in this episode, lines that just didn't need to be the way that they were written that really changed the impact of what the character was saying. Okay, I'm going to give two examples. The first one is Sally Jackson in the scene with her and Poseidon. She says this line and I literally... When I remember when she said it, I looked at the screen. I was like, why did she say it like that? It literally stuck with me. I couldn't stop thinking about it because it, was, it felt very out of place almost. She says, obviously, this beautiful line about she needs Percy to be the person that he was meant to be and not just the person that he is supposed to be. And she says, not the person that your family wants him to be. Your family. She could have so easily said, not the person that the world needs him to be or that the gods want him to be. She says, your family. And I think the reason that it stuck with me when I was ruminating on it later is that there is something so innately human about that. That is a fight that I could overhear my parents having, right? That's a fight that maybe I've had with a partner in the past myself, this tension between families and family values versus my personal values. It's not the tension between the values of the Greek gods and classical antiquity and me immortal. It's between me and equal and you and equal. And that is what is so striking about the scene between Sally and Poseidon is that they are truly equals in this conversation. Poseidon is deeply in love with Sally. Sally is speaking to a god and has the courage to call him and his family out. His family who run the entire world and could crush her into a bug if they wanted to. And she still refers to them as family. And I think it goes to something that Toby Stevens said in Riptide Radio after this episode came out, which is Poseidon is a god, but his feelings are human. Um, and there is something so beautifully human about how each of these characters are portrayed in the series. They are gods, yes, but they have weaknesses just like humans. I think that's something that drew us all to Greek mythology in the first place because gods are so human-like in this world. Um, and then the second script element that I thought was really beautifully executed, I think I've probably talked about before, is um, Percy saying, I would have never done this to you. It is a jarring moment in the script because it's a child saying it to his mother, an adult. But something about it really does make so much sense to Percy's character. Because the epitome of Percy's character is loyalty. That's his fatal flaw. We're seeing foreshadowing to it at this point in the story. He literally cannot imagine making a decision that puts him in distance with the people he loves. Even if it's the right thing to do. And how profound is it that he says that? And then later in this episode... He makes a decision to willingly put distance between him and his mother, who has been the basis for this entire quest, so that he can do the right thing that will ultimately serve him and his mother better in the long run. It's just a beautiful way to show a little bit of character growth from being a child who could never conceive of the importance of doing something like that to, you know, a, still a child, but a slightly older child who makes that decision for himself. Um, I thought that that was really well executed. And then the second Nori nomination I want to give is to Aryan Samadri, who plays Grover Underwood, and crushed the physicality, I felt, of the um, Tartarus scene where he's being pulled into the pit. Um, I thought that that was really well done. I can't imagine how difficult it would have been to do that with goat legs in sand. And I thought it really pulled me into this, the scene in the story. Um, and I'm being horrible, so I'm going to give a 0.5 Nori nomination, and it's to the music, because Bear McCreary is so good, and the score for this really made me 
you feel all the feelings. Okay, 2.5 Nori nominations. Mm, next person. Uh, yeah, I have two. They're both anime, but two different ways. Uh, first is Steve Rogers Award for Pop Culture Awareness goes to Anime Chase for nice. what are talking about? We left Kansas two days ago. <laughs> that dress was incredible. It had fantastic. everything. <laughs> it was fantastic. Loved it. And the second one, uh, shout out to my dad, who will probably be listening to this whenever he listens to this. He's from Detroit, and I realized that in both the movie and the TV show, one of the core three is from Detroit. The actor who played Grover is from Detroit, and my parents brought this up when I showed them the show because, like, we met him at the mall. We ran into, we ran into Grover at the mall. He's from Detroit. They bring oh, wow. this up all the time. They're like, yeah, we saw What's-His-Face there. <laughs> in a way, it feels like they're friends, but they're not. They just met one time. And Leah is also from Detroit. So I would say best of Detroit talent goes to Leah Sadeh Jeffries. Detroit's been having a great year. Michigan, national championships. Do not watch football that like that. But yes, Detroit Lions. Go blue anyway. Are actually winning. So if you if you like football, you understand why that's a surprise <laughs> the Detroit Lions are winning games. <laughs> Detroit talent. All right. Last thing we need to do is to get everybody's social media information. Where can people find you all on the internet? Okay. Yeah. My double check my Instagram is srains.09. Yes, I think that's correct. And then Twitter is Sophia underscore Reigns, all lowercase. And I am will be launching a Substack this week. And I will be talking with Annabeth Chase and how she allows Black girls to be soft. So keep up on that. Yay! We will make sure to promote that as soon as it's out. We'll talk about it on the pod so you guys don't miss it. And next we have a clip of Jemaya sharing where you can find her on socials. Before I give my socials, I do want to give a shout out to Seaweed Brain Podcast because this was one of the most wonderful conversations I've had in a really long time. And I am really struck by this podcast ability to nimbly go between dramaturgical and intellectual analysis and us just fangirling over the foreshadowing of you dropped this in Persebeth moments. Um, this podcast can really do it all and the attention and love for craft is very apparent as a guest. Um, so lots of love. If you want to follow along with all of my Greek mythology musics and musings, you can follow me at Chemaya on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube and Spotify and Substack. Um, and I have a weekly newsletter coming out that's all mythology inspired on Substack. On Twitter, I am at NaniWootWoot1 because I refuse to change my middle school uh, username on at least one social media platform. Um, and you can follow along for lots of fun new things coming in the very soon future. Um, perhaps, for example, uh, music that is related to Greek mythology and the Percy Jackson universe coming out very soon. Um, and I'm just very, very excited and thrilled to have been a guest on the wonderful seaweed brain podcast thank you for having me ah geez that was very nice thank you guys once again we have reached a historically long seaweed brain recording at the time (laughs) that we are i don't know how long it'll end up being but at the time that we are finishing this right now it's been three hours three hours (laughs) it has it's been three hours i can go for three more (laughs) (laughs) let's go stop by stop frame by frame let's do it there were lots of things we didn't cover literally the outline is 10 pages yeah i was reading through it 
it was good. Oh yeah. If you're a patron, if you're on a special tier in our Patreon, you get access to our outlines. So let that be a bribe. If you want to see everything that we didn't talk about that we wrote in our notes, you can go to our Patreon. Um, all that being said, we really appreciate everybody being here and especially our guests today for joining us for such a dang long time. Thank <laughs> you for having me on. This is so cathartic, so fun. This has been so special. So many special episodes. Make sure you listen to our special episode with Stu, our special episode with Arian. We've got more cool stuff coming up. Charlie Bushnell will be on the pod next week. So everybody stick around. Bye. Bye, Bye. all.